No, folks, it's not the end of the sport as we know it. It's the end of the track. Let's run.com track talk podcast as we know it. This is let's run.com co-founder Robert Johnson and welcoming you to the show. I've got a big announcement to make. A lot's been going on. I know that's why you're listening. Weldon Johnson has been removed from the podcast. He has embarrassed himself in the on athletics prediction contest. And I have kicked him off the show. I, of course, fired Jonathan Galt, our a staff writer last week and hired a much less paid intern, faster John, I call him. He's a faster young man, good journalism skills, but I don't really trust him on the podcast. So it's going to be Rojo solo. Actually, that's not true. I look, I'm looking up in my screen. I see someone on there. It looks like Jonathan Galt. It is Jonathan Galt. I'm sure everybody's happy not to have to listen to me, John. But how are you doing, John? Some people are referring to you as doping apologist, Jonathan Galt. Are you referring to me that way, Rojo? No, I'm not. Why don't you tell people what we are going to be talking about on today's show? Yeah, well, we always say on this podcast, it's kind of a running joke that there's so much to talk about, but I'm struggling to remember a wilder day in track and field recently than Monday. Should we just call it Black Monday for the Bowman Track Club or for the sport as a whole? I mean, Shelby Houlihan, obviously this is the biggest story in the track world right now. The American record holder of 1,500 for 5,000. She's tested positive for the banned steroid Androlone. She has been handed a four-year ban by the Athletics Integrity Unit. She will miss the Olympic trials. She'll miss this Olympics. She'll miss the next Olympics. We'll get all into that. But also from Bauman Land, their star steepler, Evan Jager, the Olympic silver medalist, he announced he's injured. He's not going to be running the trials. And then in the wider track, well, Molly Huddle and Shannon Ropery, who between them have five Olympic appearances, they're not going to be running either. So and that was that all came out on Monday. This is crazy. I mean, trials week's always hectic. You're always going to have some scratches. That was pretty crazy. So we'll get into all of that. Uh, and this is a jam-packed Olympic trials edition. I mean, we are going to be going all out. This is Let's Run.com. This is the Olympic trials, the biggest meet in the country. We are going to be having daily podcasts from Eugene after the night's action is done on the West Coast. We're going to do a little podcast. We'll put it up. It'll be in your feeds by the following morning, breaking down all the action from that night. So make sure you're refreshing this thing every day because we're going to have all our hot takes. We'll have our analysis and everything. Well, John, that's for subscribers. So they need to join up. Look, folks, we've been telling you to join the VIP Supporters Club. This is the time. You can join for one month. It's only a few bucks. Try it out. Daily, this is the time to join Supporters Club. You can save 20% on your shoes. We're going to have daily podcasts from Eugene. So join the Let's Run.com Supporters Club now by going to letsrun.com slash subscribe. But John, you're calling the Olympic Trials Podcast. We also have to talk about NCAAs. I mean, that was a huge meet last weekend as well. And then at the end of the podcast, we've got a great guest. Dathan Ritzenheim is here. He's going to talk about the On Athletic Club's final preparations He's got some amazing things to say about Alicia Monson. He thinks she's in sub-1440 shape. So remember, the road to the trials is sponsored by On. And speaking of On, folks, they're sponsoring our Olympic Trials Prediction Contest. You can still get into that. Enter now on the website through Friday. It makes it so much fun. You can play Fantasy Track. You can update your picks throughout the week. So a lot on that front. Um, so 
Again, one other advantage of joining Supporters Club is in addition to the daily podcast, you can follow posters, individual posters, because this this shall be hell Hulahan news. I've never seen anything like it. There's so many posts about it. Like, if you want to see what your favorite poster posts on it, you might not be reading page 18 of the 40-page thread. So I was on there for three or four hours last night. So what a crazy story. Let's get into it. Yeah, Robert, can you remember a topic on Let's Run that had more threads started on it? than this case because i think even during the 2019 world championships when alberto was the ban was handed down i don't remember this thing getting as many threads on the let's run message board as the shelby houlihan case yeah i don't remember anything getting this type of traffic i I think it's because a it was so unexpected i mean we had mentioned that we had heard this rumor a few weeks ago but most people had never heard about it i mean hadn't heard nothing about this um and think about this. This thing has gone mainstream and it's even going to go bigger mainstream. I heard Shelby's going to appear on Fox News tonight with an interview. But uh, I've had ex-Cornell runners that don't follow the sport at all calling me up and saying, dude, my mother-in-law, she doesn't follow track. She said, oh, my mother-in-law, Oliver, you ran in college. Like, have you heard about this girl that got popped for doping? Like, everyone's heard about this. And what's interesting is the mainstream, the average person who's not a track fan is not buying this burrito excuse at all. It's just, it seems too far-fetched to them. I think it's an interesting case because people that are in the sport, like ourselves, um, are much more naturally sympathetic to it um, because, just because for a number of reasons. One, you are the perfect example. Some people are saying, oh, it's because she's a white American. That's a ridiculous claim because you wrote an article on Jerry Lawson, a black sprinter in the U.S., who was fighting a similar... T- case before he got you know he won his appeal but he was claiming tainted you know food supply caused him to test positive so we are aware that this stuff does happen in the sport even the head of the usi anti-doping has said it's a problem so it's a little bit interesting the dichotomy but yeah this is crazy but john i don't think we've ever had a top u.s distance runner test positive like this ever in the history of the sport. I mean, Regina Jacobs tested, pop, got popped, but she Regina was 40. Regina who, Robert? Reg, Regina Jacobs. Okay. She got popped when she was 40. Mary Decker Slaney at the very end of her career got popped, but no one in the prime of their career, at the peak of their career, has been popped. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of an example that would be on the scale of this, let alone the week of the Olympic trials is when the case drops. Now she tested positive back in December. She's been fighting this behind the scenes for months, but what people need to understand, I mean, Shelby Houlihan's career is for all in a, all intents and purposes is over because she, she didn't go through the regular appeal route. They accelerated this appeal so that she could be eligible to compete at the Olympic trials. And that meant that it went straight to the court of arbitration for sport. They agreed to be bound by the decision there. She is, she claims she's clean. So therefore, I think she believed she was going to win. And turns out she didn't win. CAS denied her appeal, which means she's banned for four years. The only way she can overturn this is by appealing to the Swiss Federal Tribunal, which requires us hiring a Swiss lawyer. It's going to take months. And even if she gets that appeal heard, it's very unlikely she's going to win. So Shelby's, I mean, she's done at this point, uh, unless they can find some crazy evidence or uh, of lying or corruptness on the part behalf of the AIU or water or someone like that. Well, I wouldn't go that far because I mean, she could sit out four years and come back after the fact. I mean, Justin Gatlin did it in sprinting. 
and had a very good career in his 30s. I but, know he did, but she's she's 28 now, Robert. She would be 32 coming back from four years away. I mean, I guess I think she could maybe she could still run, but this is a prime. She's not going to be running 354 at age 32, I don't think. I mean, Shelby talking on the media call a couple days ago, she essentially just said she didn't know where she's going to go next. At this point, she's still trying to process it. She might go back to Iowa. She said she wanted to watch the trials to support her teammates, but she doesn't know how to think about it. So, yeah, they, I mean, there's a lot to get into with this case, though, Robert. Yeah, so where do we begin? I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard about it by now. I, folks, if you haven't read Jonathan Gull's column on the website, I'd suggest that you do read it. Um You've gotten some flack for it on the internet, but you know, of course, when millions of people are, you know, not millions of people, but when tens of thousands of people are reading something, they're going to, you're going to have critics. But it's entitled Shelby Houlihan's Suspension is a Track and Field Tragedy. And I thought it was very well balanced. You present basically both sides of the story here. You said, as a track fan, you have two options to believe one, that an innocent person has been convicted and it's a travesty. Or two, this is a great day for the anti-doping movement that they've been able to catch somebody. And, the, and you kind of have to go one or the other. But, you know, some people have said you shouldn't have an opinion. We clearly labeled it as an opinion piece. I think that makes you more credible as a journalist. I'm going to defend you here for a second. Because I've, I, as I said on the message board to someone last night, I said, look, all journalists have opinions. Most of them just don't act like they did. Do So here Jonathan's clearly labeling it as an opinion piece. And you've sided with Shelby and saying you believe them. Um, I haven't gone that far. What I've said on the message board is I would bet my life without hesitation that there is not a sophisticated doping project going on organized by Jerry Shoemaker. I would have no hesitation about that. But that does not mean that Shelby Houlihan didn't go rogue and do her own doping. It also doesn't mean that she didn't get contaminated food on that front. Yeah, Robert, I think the crux of this case is there are two things you can believe one of them. And one is that Shelby was taking oral nandrolone as a supplement and that it's not the most effective way to, to dope. It would be better to increase your strength gains if you injected it because it's in your system longer. But because it's in your system longer, it also means that it's easier to detect if you inject it. So you would have to believe she's taking uh, this supplement that, was, you know, there have been other athletes. Uh, Linford Christie was busted for nandrolone. You know, she's, it's not like it's an unprecedented drug does seem a little odd to me for a distance runner to be taking this, this drug. So you'd have to believe that she's either taking this drug, Nandrolone, or that she, and this is, you know, you look at the stats, all the things that would have to be sort of come together for her, her excuse of the burrito or her explanation of the burrito to be true. You would need it to have come from pork offal, boar offal specifically. That's where the nandrolone comes from. And that's castrated. A boar is a castrated pig, an uncastrated pig. And boar meat, I think, can it makes up only about 2% of the U.S. meat supply. And then you would need that boar meat to have been in a burrito. She ordered a carne asada burrito. Yeah. And they're saying that she gave, they actually didn't, she didn't eat the carne asada. She ate a different kind of burrito. And you would have to then argue that there was enough of that pork offal and nandrolone in the pork offal to trigger the positive test, which I admit, you know, that's a lot of things that have to go in her favor. Yeah, let me let me give a couple of version of this. I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating about this case. And there was a great post on the message board. Well, I like the first two thirds of the post by J.K. Carter. And he wrote, nothing adds up here. Both stories are equally implausible. 
let's say she's a doper. They already affirmed that the Nandewine wasn't injected. So remember, WADA has said she did not inject this. Shelby Houlihan, to her credit, has gone and passed a polygraph test, you know, mentally that she made herself, but also more importantly, passed a hair follicle test. If you're injecting Nandewine, it's going to be in your hair. You have to take it regularly. It's going to show up. She didn't have Nandewine in her system a few weeks later when she took another test. So I think WADA has accepted the fact that she was not injecting it. So she would have to be taking it orally, which I just got off the phone with someone. It's like, you would not take this orally. Orally, when you take steroids orally, it just flushes through your system. Your liver just flushes it out. It's a dumb way to take it. Nobody would be doing this. So again, let's say she's a doper. They've already found that nanoline wasn't injected. It wasn't detected later as such. The other word is oral, which everyone agrees is a stupid way to take it and largely non-detectable after an hour. But let's say she's clean. The story they're giving is that our burrito that allegedly came from a state carne acido was tainted with enough pig offal from a specific type of pig to trigger these levels. I've eaten a lot of food court burritos and getting mixed meat isn't uncommon, but for that amount of coincidence to occur one after the other, dot, dot, dot. I agree, John, because the, my biggest problem with this, and your friend, Will Goheekin, former Dartmouth runner, I think he also ran in Oregon, right? I mean, give, give us his credentials, John. Yeah, USA finalist in 2016, I think he does. He still hold the Ivy League record in the mile. He at least form, used to hold it. Uh, sub four miler though. Oh, USA finalist in 2015. I'm not sure if he made the trials final in 2016. Sorry about that. Anyways, your friend Will Goheekin has gone to Twitter and said exactly what I've said. My biggest problem with 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 all of this is I didn't like the way that press conference went down. I and, and in the sense of. If you listen to the press conference live, you would have thought, oh, she ate pig. She ordered pork at the, at, at, at the burrito truck. It's tainted, blah, blah, blah. When the press conference ended, I, only, I, immediately, I immediately thought, show me the receipt. If I see a receipt that she ordered pig taco, um, pork taco, I'm letting her off. That all seems believable. But I thought the way they were phrasing things sounded a little bit weird to me. No one asked the question. I demanded that you find out the next day. So you called up the lawyer and said, hey, what kind of taco did she have? Find out she ordered a steak taco. Burrito, so, Robert. So you have to assume that they got it wrong. I do think they get things wrong right, but not only that, just the way, I, it really bothered me the way that their statements were worded. And here's what Will Gohican said. But both Shelby and Jerry's statements were very carefully worded for the reader to assume that the burrito in question was a pork burrito without actually saying that. And that really bothers me. Jerry, Shelby, Bowerman Track Club, you're expecting the fans to accept, to believe a very unlikely scenario. I ordered steak. I got pork. What does that happen? One out of 10 times? Not only that, it's male pork. 2% of the beef is male pork, but 2% of beef is not uncastrated male pork. That's just male pork in general. No, 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 no. 2% is the boar. The boar meat is 2%, Robert. Uncastrated male pork. It's about 2% of the supply. That's the number that was provided by Paul Green, a lawyer. Okay. But then it's just not uncastrated. Any meat, you have to have the organs of the pork which is, you know, not necessarily, is extremely uncommon. Well, well, I, Robert, Robert, what I will well, say well, here is when they went back to the food truck to investigate it, they found pork offal, which is pork organs, in two of the eight kinds of burritos that that food truck served. They it found, wasn't one of the ones that shall be ordered, but it was two of the eight. They found pork offal specifically mentioned on the menu? Or just pork? Not on the menu when they tested like what was in each burrito. That's what they found. Okay, I need to see that then. I need to see the pork offal. Because an ex-Cornell runner of mine has called me up who's in the food industry and runs an independent grocery who, or whose motto is you can't beat our meat. And he said, like, look, this doesn't happen. There's no 
people don't get pig offal in the U.S. food supply. He's like, most people are using the cheapest pork out there. And the cheapest pork out there is highly, the most highly regulated, highly inspected pork in the country. It's inspected by the USDA. You don't have organs of pork in there. He said it's just extremely unlikely. So when I've done the math, it's like, okay, one in 10 that the food is changed. One in, one in 50 that you get male pork. And then what are the odds that you actually get the organs of the pork? Normally that's going to be probably like one in a thousand, whatever, and then enough to trigger it. I mean, I think you're, you could easily do the math. Again, I don't know. I want to see more evidence in this. You're into over one in a million. Now, that sounds crazy, but let's say it is one in a million. Water does 250,000 tests a year. So you would have one of these cases pretty regularly. This is what I would say. I think that's a good point, Robert. This stuff is rare, but rare stuff taken on a large enough sample can happen. And the Jerry and Lawson case, which is a very close parallel of this, because their whole argument was trenbolone, which is the substance he tested positive for, that does not show up. That shouldn't be showing up in any meat in the United States because they have a process and the way that they do the trenbolone, anytime they add it to an animal, it shouldn't be given right to the, I think they do an injection behind the ear. It's not right into the muscle. And their argument was, well, he ate beef from a, you know, a teriyaki beef bowl and that the tre- there was enough trenbolone in the muscle that he tested positive for. And so their whole point was, well, that Wada's point, and sorry, AIU's point was, according to the industry meat standards of the United States, this shouldn't happen. And yet eventually CAS concluded, well, that's the only way it could have happened. And they overturned the ban. So my argument will be, yes, I, there are standards in the United States in terms of like meat practices that are supposed to prevent this stuff. But we've also seen, you know, we've seen it happen before with Jerry and Lawson. Will Clay, now RJ Wilson, Zeranol, that showed up in her um, her sample as well. She was cleared by USADA. That We've seen it happen a few times and it comes down, do you believe these athletes, they, they found an excuse that works and that's why they keep doing it? Or do you actually think that they're genuine and then they're the unfortunate victims here? Yeah, and you know, I've had friends, insiders, even fellow coaches call me and well, you know, one of the questions they were saying is, well, how come we only hear about this with high profile? Does this happen in other sports? I think the answer there is yes. Paul Green told you he's had 20 to 25 cases of this in other sports. So that's interesting. I mean, it seems implausible, but the fact that the head of the U.S. anti-doping, Travis Tiger, was already telling you, you know, two years ago that this is a problem makes me think it is a real legit problem. But one thing that's interesting here is if you wanted to dope, I know one thing. I don't know if Shelby's dirty. I don't know if she's clean. And I think that actually the Let's Run poll is is – we put a poll up and it was about one third thinks she's dirty. One third thinks she's clean and about 40% thinks she's, they don't know. I think that's a good way to think about it because we don't have all the facts here. But um, one thing I'm certain of is the system has to change. They either have to change the level that they're testing for, or they have to just tell people don't eat these foods. If, if you test positive, you're banned. It doesn't matter because we can't, I mean, right now, if you wanted to dope, what you could do is just take this drug and then just go get a pork receipt every day and actually eat pork, and then you could get off when you test positive. It would be the easiest way to dope ever. No, 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 Robert. If you tested by USADA, maybe. In these AIU cases, Jerry and Lawson was banned. The AIU never accepted his defense, and he was, he was only cleared after missing almost two years of his career because he was able to appeal to, to uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and he had the receipts. Shelby Houlihan just got banned for four years. 
And okay, she didn't have the pork receipt, but like, I don't think if she said, oh, I had a pork burrito instead of a carne asada, I'm not convinced the AIU would have just cleared her immediately. I think she'd still be fighting this, but I am pretty so- I'm pretty sure that if this was a USADA case as opposed to the AIU, USADA would have cleared her just like they cleared Will Clay, just like they cleared uh, RJ Wilson. 100%. I've talked to a source who said that if this was a handled by the U.S. anti-doping authorities, she would have been cleared instantly. We would have never heard about it because of the, you know, the Tandemif is a problem. And some people say, oh, they're only doing it for Americans. That's not true. Again, Travis Tigert has gone to apparently to the Australian version of 60 Minutes to talk about how the, apparently there's a swimmer over there that's been popped. And he's like, look, they very well could, could come from Canada B. So the question earlier of does it happen in other sports, I think the answer is yes. But one thing that's very hard for me is why does it only seem to happen with prominent athletes, the best of the best, A.J. Wilson, A.J. Wilson, Jarian Lawson, et cetera. But the answer to that might be, and again, I want to see more stats, would be these people are tested like every two weeks. Like 90% of the test, if you're in the top 10 of the world, are probably not top 10 of the world people. So you're not going to hear, they're not testing the people that are finishing mid-pack or in the back of the pack, those people are, you know, are, are hardly you know, ever being tested. But I want to get to another message board post. I'm having several message board posts of the week. Because you said if U.S. anti-doping was doing it, she would have been cleared. I do think that there's a big battle between U.S. anti-doping and European anti-doping. In this case, it was the Montreal lab. But... Um, this post is one that I loved. It's got a little bit of criticism of it, but I, but but um, it's got some things that, that, that I really like. From T. Woggle, a few points. I can't help but think that the Brojos and Jonathan Galt would be jumping up and down with glee and ready to crucify had this exact thing happened to Rapper Dababa. I think that whether there's a suspicion or not, better for the sport to, to not have double standards. I don't remind, number two, I don't rely, mind relying on statements from the BTC teams for now especially the, accepting the fact that they said the AIU realized, accepted she didn't take an injection. If they disagreed, then they'll either come out with it or put up the transcripts. There's no reason to think the transcripts won't eventually come out. Number three, if someone in the lab was caught being dishonest in the recent past, they obviously shouldn't have been part of drug testing in any way, or they should have been given a four-year ban. I don't know if Shelby is innocent, but given the rate of wrongful criminal convictions in the U.S., it is inevitable that some innocent athletes will be convicted. I thought it was a, a wonderful post on a, on a number of different levels. But this Ayat woman, what's her name, John? Help me out here. Christiane Ayat. She's the director of the Water Accredited Lab in Montreal. Yes. In the Jerry and Lawson case, this is very important for people to understand. He said, hey, I, I ate contaminated beef. And then they asked her, well, can you tell in a test whether it's contaminated beef or not? She's like, no, everyone tests for a really low level. All of our positives are a really low level. That was a lie. That was not true. She... They Paul uh, Doyle, her Jerry's agent, subpoenaed her lab records, had someone analyze it, and some people had like 200 times the, the level of Jerry and Lawson. So what she said was not true. There are, were some people who were actually like really on drugs that were taking way higher level of it, and she basically lied under oath, or you could say she misstated under oath. Maybe, maybe she was really confused, but she made an unacceptable mistake for an expert witness. I live in Baltimore. There's a lot of police problems here, and when that happens here, they've caught a lot of cops, not a lot, but a number of cops lying on the stand. Those cops never testify again in court because they're not to be believed. And I think that she should have been suspended at least for four years from testifying in court or suspended from her job for this. Like the mistake that she made 
is unacceptable. And I believe ardently in the anti-doping movement. But I also, it's just like the police. I believe very much in the police in this country, but I also hold them to a very high standard. I'm all for the body cams. And when you violate that trust like she did, there's got to be extreme consequences. So she happens to be the one in charge of this lab. She's just been embarrassed by the Americans on the stand. Uh, That makes me a lot less, a lot more sympathetic to Cindy, to to, uh, Shelby because of that. Yeah, I think it's a good point, Robert. And it's, it's, I was kind of amazed, honestly, when I heard that she was the one who was in, you know, who tested this sample and I don't know what she said specifically. We'll have to wait for the CAS, uh, the full decision to come out. And I do think you mentioned that poll on the homepage with 40% of people undecided. If you're undecided right now, I mean, look, if you think she's Shelby's a doper, can I really blame you? No, there's been so many high profile athletes have gone down in the sport. You know, the sport doesn't really have a lot of credibility, but I think the people who are waiting for all this, the CAS side of the argument to come in, they're probably smarter than I am because they're not leaping to judgment, but you know, I, I have my reasons, which I outlined in the article of why I think, why I tend to believe Shelby and, and BTC. A few more points. One, they said if this was Rupp, we would be acting differently. I admitted that on the message board. Yes, I would. Your the reputation, your reputation matters. You know, it, that's just the way it works. If if a criminal, if somebody with a shady past is accused of something, you're much more likely to think they did it than someone who's got a, a, a sterling reputation like Jerry Shoemaker does in the sport. And I posted, there's a, if this happened to an NLP athlete, there's at least a Salazar athlete. There's at least 12 different facts associated with Alberto Salazar that I don't have with Albert, with Jerry Schumacher. One Salazar was part of the athletics West where there was no steroid use Two, steroid. All right, Robert, Sal- don't leave, read all 12. We get it. We get that there are much more questions about Alberto Salazar. This is a man who's currently serving a four-year suspension for anti-doping violations. So, yes, we understand okay. why Galen Rupp, or if it was DeBaba, whose coach, they found EPO on a raid at their hotel when she was staying there. We understand why this might be treated differently. Okay. I'll link to that in the show notes, that thread with the 12 reasons I think about Salazar. But, John, you're always going off on Auden. And I want you to state for the record, I'm always consistent. When you go off on Auden, before this even happened, I said, look, they raided his hotel room. They didn't bust him. We've got they found him. EPO, Robert. They found EPO. They what, alleg- what was it doing there? What was it doing there? They allegedly found EPO, John. They allegedly found EPO. I don't know. If the police inv- raid his house and they can't bust him, then I don't know. At some level, we have to let him back in the sport, John. And I've said the same thing about Salazar. I said I found his conviction to be extremely unsatisfying all along. I've always thought Salazar was, I didn't totally trust him. But when he got convicted, I said, I don't like the way this went down. I've been consistent on this all along. I mean, I just, th- I find like, like I, I just find it crazy that like John Auden's the guy you want to pin your hopes on. Like, oh, he got a raw deal. I'm sorry. If they, if they raid your hotel rooms and fight EPO, in the room of one of your athletes. And guess what? All your athletes are running ridiculously well. And there's a lot of suspicion around them. Yeah. I'm not really going to give you much benefit of the doubt there, Robert. Okay. Well, a lot of people would say that a lot of Jerry's athletes are running ridiculously well. Yeah. Did they raid Jerry's hotel room and find EPO in one of his athletes rooms? Mike, this is what I want from WADA. And this is what I want to know from the European athletic integrity. Whatever happened to the John Madden case. 
It, I'm assuming they didn't have anything. I'm assuming they didn't find these things because somebody wasn't charged. But this is what's the problem. This is why the system has to change. We, we, we can't have somebody eating a pizza spiked with something and getting busted, and then someone getting the room raided and they found EPO in the fridge, and no one gets busted. It's a fucked up system. Sally Jenkins has just come out with a system saying it's got to be changed. And some may be mad about this, but why is it this case? I, Shelby can be dirty. I think it's a tragedy whether she's dirty or clean because it's just... It's it's a bowling pot. And sometimes you have to have the bowling pot and the anti-doping movement to get meaningful change. I want meaningful to change. This is the George Floyd case of the anti-doping movement of, we, but we know that George Floyd didn't deserve that. We don't know that for a fact about Shelby, but this is the case that's gotten the public's consciousness. And I hope some good can be covered. A couple other points though. You talked about a lot of people, Ross Tucker on Twitter, sports scientists have said, look, whenever there's late improvement, You've got to be suspicious. And I agree with that. That's normally true. But Shelby's I, I, improvement to me is not like automatic doper to me in any stretch of the imagination. I, I think of a lot of women who, as one coach was saying to me, who was skeptical of her excuse, by the way. I was talking to a coach who's coached Olympians and whatnot, who thinks that everyone's doping. He thinks Kipchoge, all these people are doping. And I'm, I'm always pushing back on him. But you know, I said, well, what about this argument? People said she improved too much. I don't really think that's the case. And the example I saw was Kate Grace. Kate Grace was an 800-meter runner at Yale. She was like 203. Now she's run 158 and made the Olympic final. Five seconds in the 800 is a ton. But to me, it doesn't shock me. She was like a dilettante in running at Yale, barely trained, got serious about it post-collegiately, and runs 158. Shelby was a superstar in high school. Maybe she wasn't training that hard at Arizona State, and then she gets really, really serious, gets really, really hardcore and improves. I mean, my brother ran 30 minutes in college and improved it like 27 to 28 minutes. So I know that these type of improvements are possible. Um, and as this, this coach did say to me, who's skeptical of everything, he said, yes. And the one thing that Shelby has that you need to be world class is she's got the speed. She was more like a 4'8 girl, maybe 8'15. And then she starts training at a high level. If you train like an, uh, somebody who's basically capable of winning an 800 NCAA title and then she can handle the 80-mile, 100-mile weeks, you know, that's pretty special talent. Robert, I'm curious what you make of the reaction publicly to this case. In the running community, is like, well, she blames a burrito. That's a likely story. But the, I've seen the Bauman athletes, they've all come out 100% in support of Shelby. They all have these Instagram posts explaining why they believe in her, all that sort of stuff. But the larger U.S. running community, you know, our message boards and Twitter, I sort of use those as like taking a poll of what people think. And I'm I'm kind of actually surprised how many people are just willing to condemn her immediately. There are certainly undecided people, but there are, and then there are people like me who say tend to believe her. I was kind of surprised how many are against and – Maybe there's just this this jadedness, this lingering suspicion. Anyone who runs 354, if you're running, you know, if you look at the people around her on the all time list, a lot of those names are very suspicious. I'm just, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised that there are that many people. As soon as this thing comes out that she tested positive for a substance, they just they will take the word of CAS and they say, yeah, and obviously there's a protocol in place that there's a fine, you know, AAU has to. It's not like they're just saying, oh, she's immediately suspended. They have a process that they follow as well. But I am kind of surprised that the, the good faith that I think Bauman has built up in the running community for the last decade doesn't mean anything as soon as this news is, is announced. John, the average person is not an insider. They don't know the Bauman Club's reputation. They don't know any of this stuff. So they don't have 
that to go on. Uh, yeah, I was a little bit surprised on the message board, but I, I'm more just shocked. And like, the mainstream people, the average person is not a running fan, is like laughing at this excuse. Yeah. Um, but I'm not surprised by that. What I am surprised is people who follow the sport closely just saying, well, this this has to be doping. There's no, they're, they're not even leaving open. Like, I think she's innocent, but I'm leaving. I certainly think it's possible that she actually was microdosing or taking, like, I'm not going to be an idiot and say that's not possible. I think from what I've seen that people who think she's doping just say there is no way the AIU or WADA could have screwed up on this one. Even though, you know, we have a history of these low level positives happening and the Jerry and Lawson case got overturned by CAS. I just think that's a scenario you have to, even if you're the most ardent anti-doping supporter, I think you need to consider the fact that meat contamination is possible because most of them just, most of these people who are hardliners seem to think meat contamination is impossible, that it's just never a possible valid excuse. And I just don't, I disagree with that point. Yeah, but it's so easy to be skeptical because we have to, we have to hear about it. Everyone that tests positive is, is so Jerry and Lawson, Ajay Wilson, either the meat problem is a real problem and it needs to be addressed immediately because we keep, I mean, how often, how many more are we going to have? What I would like to do, John, honestly, if I had no limited amount of money is I would like to have someone go eat at that food truck the pork, whatever's on the damn menu, eat it every day for a hundred days mm-hmm. and have them tested and see if they test positive. Um, but maybe that's not enough, but I, I, or just, and also have another person just eat every day and get tested every single day. Like how common is this problem? Travis Tiger seems to think it's real, but you know, we, we don't know really. I, I have one other question for you, Robert, you know, at some point we need to move on and discuss the trials and NCAAs, but I just want to, I guess I want to question, like, if you're on the side of Houlihan's guilty, she's the doper, you know, what listening to her defend herself and then listening to Shalane Flanagan, the Bowman assistant coach, and Jerry Schumacher, the Bowman head coach, Jerry doesn't do media, He go, but he went on this call and he gave a fiery, impassioned defense of Shelby. He totally slammed WADA and the AIU. Like, he believes 100% that... Shelby's innocent and that this is a great tragedy in the history of American distance running. And I guess my question, if you think she's doping, you either think one of two things is true. That Jerry is ignorant. He's been taken in. One of his athletes is doping right under his nose and he didn't know about it. Or he's part of it and he's just lying. And this whole thing about him blasting water and AIU and him telling his athletes that he's anti-doping, that that's just a facade and he's really just a total fake. And I'm just curious, like, which one of these things people think is true? Is he ignorant or a liar? Well, that's interesting. That's one reason why I think she... Um, I'm having a tough time with this whole case, but the one thing I would not hesitate at all is I don't think there's a master doping plan going on by Jerry Schumacher. So if she did it, she's a rogue doper. But I, then I think, okay, well, Carissa Schweizer can run almost as fast, you know, so whatever. So I don't think the performances are that shocking because... I really don't think that there's a sophisticated doping thing because a, you wouldn't do it this way. This would be the dumbest way to do it. So I don't know what they think. I think just, I do think there's an anti-American sentiment out there. People, it's like the New York Yankees for other countries. And there's a big battle going on between like the rest of the world doping and us anti-doping. And, you know, I imagine that that played, if this was, again, as we said at the beginning of the show, if this was in the U S and handled by U S authorities, they would have let them off. Now foreigners are probably listening to this and saying, of course they'd let them off. Hello, people. We just banned Christian Coleman, Lance Armstrong, Marion Jones. We're the only people country, basically, that bans the big of the big. Um, so th- that's th- that's an interesting, you know, point that you bring up. But 
almost until I talked to a source before the show, I was going to come onto the show and say, you know what? I think that she may be clean. She may be dirty, but I'm, I was so bothered by their misleading statements in that press conference. Here's another post from racist. All four of these statements were meticulously choreographed to deceive the public and sway public opinion in their favor. They crafted the press conference wanting you to believe that she ate pork burrito from a Mexican food truck or restaurant, depending on who you'd like to believe. I really think they failed that. And I was going to be like, okay, then it's a one in a million chance that she happened to get this wrong food. You know, WADA says you're responsible for what's in your body. Unfortunately, it's one in a million, but you're banned. Okay. You know, don't eat that stuff. But I then changed my mind a little bit. So... It's just it's just such a crazy case. I just wish they had handled it a little bit better because she did do the polygraph. She did the hair follicle. Most people aren't doing that. And people are always like, oh, you know, you're criticizing based on how they handle the press conference. I'm like, well, how would you handle the press conference yourself? I do have one question for you, John. Yeah. And I've defended you because I think it's great. All journalists have their biases. Most of them don't admit it. You put yours out there. This is an opinion piece. You believe them. But you admitted that you could be wrong. Yeah. But do you think subconsciously you're trying to curry favor with them. You're trying to become the Peter King of the track and field journalism. If you rip the Bowerman track club, that's the easy thing to do. The, the, the mainstream media is probably doing that, whatever. But if you go out on a limb now, the athletes view Jonathan Galt as, oh, he's pro us. The Bowerman track club, one of the most prominent groups in America is like, oh, he's pro us. And you sort of, I love, I'd like to be liked by Jerry. Maybe you want to be liked by Jerry. It's just human nature to want to be liked. And you're liked by a very powerful group. I think there's a tendency on most journalists to do this. This is a criticism of Peter King and the NFL. How would you respond to that? I mean, I don't think that's a conscious thing. Is it subconscious? Maybe. I don't know. I can't really speak to my subconscious. But, I mean, I'm going to curry favor with Jerry Schumacher. What's that going to get me, Robert? Have you seen how many interviews Jerry Schumacher gives? He doesn't do them. Like, I don't really see – obviously, you don't – you know, it's easier when the best coach in America or one of them is not pissed at you. But – you know, I, I don't see, I am not like, oh, wow, Bauman is just going to give me all these exclusives. Again, Jerry barely does any interviews at all. But what I would say about this, Robert, is I think if this is a credibility thing and I, when I'm writing something and if I'm trying to maintain credibility, am I going like, I, I just genuinely believe she's innocent. I, I, I would be very surprised. Everything that, that I've ex- encountered covering the sport tells me that this is a miscarriage of justice. And if I'm going to be writing something on it, I don't think it's like, I just think it's wrong to take this position, the anti-position and say, well, okay, why, you know, you were banned by the AIU, CAS upheld the ban. Therefore I must treat you as a dopa. They've told me this is the right decision and I have to follow it. I, I think if I wrote this in the column, but like we're supposed to call out bullshit. And I truly believe she's been, I think she's been screwed over here and we'll, I guess we'll have to wait for the full CAS decision to come out, but I'm okay. Putting my reputation on the line and saying, Hey, I think something's wrong. is happening here. And this athlete has been punished for it. And if people want to say, well, you're an idiot and you were taken in. Okay. They can, but I'm okay with writing that because I just think it's when you're a journalist, you're seeking, seeking truth. And I kind of think the truth here is that, the system is broken and that the athlete is innocent. And if that's what I think, I think I have to report that and I have to, that has to be reflected in my writing. Yeah. It's just, it's a really, I think it's a tragedy, you know, regardless of what's happening, because I almost had gone to the point of like, okay, well, we got to change the rules, but if it's in there, even if it's one in a million, you're just, 
you're responsible. But then I'm like, I don't know if that's right. You know, again, the best take is none of this makes sense. As Tuzi wrote, no professional distance runner is taking oral nandroin. That's just the bit that doesn't add up for me. It's completely useless as a performance enhancer. But then it's such an improbability that it's that she happened to eat this when she didn't order it, etc. But the more I think about it, I actually like this quote. Jerry basically compared this to an execution. Like, this is the death penalty for an athlete. You said her career's over. Maybe she can come back. But it's basically the execution of an athlete's career. And you would never do, in the criminal justice system, at least in America, you would never do that or knowingly do that if it was a one in 10,000, even one in 100,000 chance. You need, and this is why we're actually, they're going to kind of getting rid of capital punishment is because people do make mistakes. So if it's a chance, even the tiniest of chances that you could have injected a food, I think you've got to err on the side of the athlete. So she may be dirty. But I, I just think that, the, and I guess I, I'm leaning with you on this in the end, if I really had to make a statement. Yeah, and Robert, one other thing I would say, if you're a coach or an athlete who's following this story and you think, well, this is bullshit, I thought she was doping before, and she, you know, this proves it. I would just say, okay, you, don't, you think that this tainted beef, sorry, tainted pork excuse is, is bullshit. You're entitled to that opinion. But if this happens to you, if you test positive for a substance you say you've never heard of and you think the most likely explanation is that, or one of your athletes, if you're a coach, and you think the most explanation, likely explanation is tainted meat, that's the conclusion you reach, you shouldn't expect a lot of sympathy. You, because you're ruling out, again, you're saying contamination doesn't happen. You're saying this isn't a, a possible excuse. You know, all these tainted meat excuses are bullshit. I would just say if that's the opinion you want to hold and your favorite athlete or your favorite you know, group has a situation like this, you just got to think like, if you don't think this is a genuine problem, fine. But if that happens to you, don't expect a lot of sympathy down the road from you know the people who you've been condemning. And this is case by case. Look, I'm not just going to blindly say anyone, like, I just think you need to, you need to look at the facts in every case. But I, I looked at the facts here and in the, the background as well, because the facts aren't necessarily in Shelby's favorite, but when I take the whole picture into consideration, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the opinion I've reached. I was a little bit surprised that you took that opinion this soon, only because we haven't seen the decision. Right. We right. That's fair. That's, that's fair criticism. One thing that's interesting about this case, and if we're going to compare it to death penalty is the reality is to get convicted of criminally in the United States, you need like a jury of your peers. And it's like nine or 12 people or something. You need a unanimous 100%. And in the U.S., you kind of have to be convicted several times. you got to be convicted once, and then you get to the appeal. So it's kind of like people say double jeopardy, but it's not like the opposite. You actually have to be convicted more than once. You get convicted, and then your appeal gets, also has to be affirmed. Here, in the court of arbitration of sport, it's three people. You only have to have three. There's not as many people to have doubt. And it doesn't even have to be unanimous. If it's two to one, you're gone. And I don't think that's right. I think it should have to be unanimous. But guess what, Robert? This was unanimous. This was not unanimous. Sorry, this was not unanimous. This was a majority decision. No, part so, of it was a majority and part of it was under the majority, right? Okay. So what it said, the CAS panel by majority found that the athlete neither rebutted the presumption that the adverse analytical finding was properly reported. So they're saying in terms of like the procedures that were following that were followed, two of the three CAS people think that the AIU and you know the lab was in the right. But then they said the CAS panel unanimously determined that Shelby had failed on the balance of probability to establish the source of the prohibited substance. So actually, that's a very good uh, that's a good clarification there, Robert. Yeah, but still, I, I want to see that because to me, it's got to be 100. percent And on the balance of probability, 
yeah, I don't think that the odds that this happens to many people, I think it's like one in a hundred thousand. I mean, that's to me one too many times. Okay, Robert, I think that's probably it for the Shelby Houlihan section. We've got a lot of other stuff to talk to, so shall we move on? Yeah, we got to get back. Let's, let's talk about NCAs, and then we'll try to do a lot of Olympic trials, but we got to get to the Ritz podcast. Again, if you want the, the day-by-day, blow-by-blow, we can't preview our 12-day meet right now. Sign up for the Supporters Club. Do the monthly thing. Hell, you can. I think it's $9 the month or something. It's the best $9 you'll spend. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. Don't forget, though, to listen to the entire podcast. And at the end of the podcast, folks, for the supporting club members today, I'm going to share a joke. And this isn't a jokey matter, the Shelby thing, but someone did call me when this was happening on, when was it, Friday? And something they said to me, it's the type of thing you would say to your person. You wouldn't want it publicly. It was a very funny joke. But if you're the Bellarmine Tribe Club, you wouldn't want to hear it. So <laughs> I will share that with the supporters club members at the end of the podcast. All right. Well, NCAAs, Robert, doesn't this meet feel like it was a million years ago? I mean, I guess it's Wednesday and the meet started last Wednesday. So it, was a, you know, it started a week ago. But I mean, it was great. Every year, NCAA Outdoors is one of the best track meets in the world. This year was no exception. Uh, and I think we have to start our summary. This was the most hyped NCAA 1500 in my lifetime, certainly that I can recall, between Yara Nagus and Cole Hawker. And it lived up to the billing. This was one of the greatest NCAA races I've ever seen. Cole Hawker closes in 148 for his final 800 to beat out Yard Nagoose. He runs 335, which is pretty incredible with that negative split. And Yard Nagoose is shortly behind. They're battling each other in the home straight. Finally, Hawker pulls away at the end. This was everything I wanted from this race. And I feel I just feel bad that Yard Nagus had to lose because he ran a great race. He just got beat by an even better race. Yeah, it was amazing. It was a fantastic race. And it wouldn't surprise me if the roles were reversed at the Olympic trials. I think that both of these guys have legitimate Olympic shots. And the fifteen hundred at the trials is gonna be amazing because you've got Hawker, Tier, Centro, Ingalls. I think any of those four guys could win the race. Yeah. Also, Hawker's not in there. Hawker and Nagoose. What did I say? I didn't say... Well, anyways. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Not only could all these guys make the team, I think they could all win the race, which is really exciting. And then what about Hobbs Kessler? I don't know if you saw this tweet, Robert. So Nick Willis, the two-time Olympic medalist, everyone listening to this podcast knows who Nick Willis is. He made his picks for the trials. He said, Nagoose, Centro, Kessler. He said, Nagoose will not lead from the gun this time. He's learned his mistake. Hawker getting boxed won't be as easy to get out in a deeper field. Hawker was boxed at, you know, at the bell here, but he got out. He, Hawker, actually, I thought he had a very smart answer after that. He's like, look, I knew how fast we were running. It was going to thin out eventually over the last 800. And it, guess what? It did. And then Nick Willis says, Hobbs will sneak past three guys in the final 20 meters. I found this very interesting. Uh, a, that's disrespecting Craig Engels. So that's, we just got to note that and Cole Hawker, but you got to disrespect someone when we're making trials picks. But two, like Nick's point was, okay, Nagus will improve his tactics for the trials and Hawker's going to be in trouble because he, he didn't have great tactics in this uh, NCAA final. Well, I would say to this, he has the confidence that Hobbs Kessler, who until two weeks ago had never even run a state championship race is going to be some tactical mastermind is going to be able to blow by three guys. And like in the third round of the Olympic trials, 1500, I just think that's, 
I know he trains with Hobbs, so obviously he's biased. But one, I think it's kind of crazy he would even tweet this and put this prediction on the record. That's a lot of pressure to put on an 18-year-old training partner. And two, that he would just ignore that Hobbs Kessler by far is the most inexperienced, both just running and tactically, and that the the Olympic trials final can often be a tactical race. Yeah, you talked to me about when you got this when you saw the tweet yesterday. You called me up, and I agree with your analysis that you just said. Like Kessler is the most inexperienced tactically. So he's the one most likely to have a thing. What I want to say, though, about the tactics is I really loved what, what Hawker had to say about that. I used to say this at Cornell, folks. I'm a mid-D distance guru. Strategy. Go, go watch me break down the 1500 on the Johnny Gregoric film on YouTube. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But, John, I know you're obsessed with when you write your recaps. You're always talking about the box. Yeah. It's so overrated, folks. It always opens up. I want someone to name. Seriously. Email the show, pod at letsrun.com, or give us a call, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. Tell me the last time someone lost a race because they were boxed in. Like, it always, uh, wait, wait, can I, can I do my email now? Or can I, I can answer that question right now, right? Because do you remember the 2016 Olympics and the semifinals, Robert? Robert? Do you remember what happened then? Robbie Andrews Robbie. ran out of room. He clearly had enough to make the final, but had to run on the inside, infield to pass someone, and he got DQ'd rightfully. Uh, that race sticks in my memory. He would have made the final if he had better tactics. Fair enough. It's happened once in a decade. But <laughs> I think it's happened more than once. People always As think they... 2016 Olympic final. Well, he ran like he made movie. such a big move to move up to Centro's shoulder. He had nothing left for the final 200. He was the best guy in that race, Robert. Yes. Look, and my other thing is you've got one move in the 800. You've got two in the 1500. Kids probably tried to make four or five. It was idiotic. Maybe I'll make another video on that race. How, I, I watched that the other day how bad it was. People... So many runners think they need to be ahead of 100 meters to go. You can make up a ton of ground in the last 50 meters. And actually, Kessler does make up a lot of ground in the 50 meters. If I'm Ron Warhurst, I tell Kessler, run in eighth place the entire race. If the field breaks up, stay in main in the contact at the very back of the lead pack if they're going fast. And then just you go as hard as you can, you know, the last 120 meters. And that's what Cooper Tier's strategy was in the 5,000 NCAAs. Go as hard as you can the last 120 meters. And... and It'll take care of itself. I do think that can work for Kessler. I don't think Kessler's going to make the team. I think just making the final is incredible for a high school athlete if he can do that. But I do think if you have the big dogs like Hawker, like uh, Centro, like Angles, like Nagoose, if they're all trying to fight each other off because there's only three spots and there's four of them, and one of them misjudges their move or they goes too early and tries to hang with a move they shouldn't, or two of them would have to do this you could see someone sweep up the pieces and get that third spot. It's not necessarily Hobbs Kessler. It could be Henry Wynn. It could be someone like that. But I could yes. see that happening. Yes, there's a lot more pressure when you're running thinking I have to be top three versus running. It's like it's like, it's like like when you're at the casino and you get up and you're playing with house money. If you're up $500, you know, it's a lot easier to put down a $500 bet at the end. So, yes, that's a very good point. I do think we could have a surprise, someone we haven't really mentioned, who sort of... I don't want to say snipes their way into the team, but basically does do that. Yeah. Okay. So this was supposed to be an NCAA recap. So let's go back to the NCAA meet. I mean, Robert, at times just meaningless now. I guess we've had this conversation in other arenas, but if you look at the distance times in this men's race, races, 10 men break 28 minutes. They break a 42-year-old meet record in the 10K. In the 5K, six guys break 13-20. Kupatia wins in 13-12, which breaks the legendary school record by Bill McChesney of 1314. I mean, 
I would say that the times look, we would we have seen these times a few years ago without the super shoes. No, they'd be a little slower, but I think they'd still be pretty freaking fast because you've got a lot of good athletes, the NCAA talent pool, it's always getting better. And then you've also got those perfect conditions and you've got a rabbit in Wesley Kiptu who essentially took these paces, races out and people followed them him because they thought he had to be taken seriously. So I think there was a sort of a lot of different things that added up to that. But yeah, the shoes are one of the, one of those factors for sure. Yes. You know, people are like, oh, how often do they run fast? The, the stat that was shocking to me, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, they had the rabbit. Yes, they had the rabbit and they had good weather. But the reality is 14 men this year broke 28 minutes. And the last 10 years combined in the entire NCAA was less than 14. I think it was like, so it's not just this one race. It was the entire season. And there weren't even very many. There was no Stanford. There was no Mount Sac 10,000 to, to go chase times anyways. And people are only talking about the meet records. Look at the women's 1500. How many women broke 410 in that race? Of course, the shoes are having a huge impact. I mean, go back to 2019. It was a fast race. It was a 405 race. It was in hot weather. Good weather for running fast in 1500. Two people did it. We had like eight people do it at this meet. Well, we, we had three do it in the final, Robert. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating. But, anyway. but yeah, I mean, well, no, you look at, especially like, look at the steeple times. And maybe, maybe the steeple's not the best one to pick because the best women don't usually race each other. And then they finally get in fast races at NCAAs. But we had all-time marks in the steeple. And one of the storylines I saw on the women's side was just the favorites getting upset. You look at the 800, uh, Aaliyah Miller, the NCAA indoor champion from Baylor, she doesn't even make the final. In the 1500, Sage Herder had been unbeatable all year. She was the NCAA mile champ. She gets beat by Anna Camp from BYU. And then in the steeple, Courtney Wayman, who was the best runner in the country, period, indoors, with a 3K DMR double, she gets fourth in the steeple, which was a big upset. That was that might have been the women's race in the meet with Mahala Norris of Air Force. She was third entering the final barrier. She lost ground on the barrier. She did not hurdle it well. And yet she still runs down Joyce Camelli and Katie Rainsberger and wins that in 931. She hadn't even she'd never even run a steeple until April. So I thought that was a great story. Never made an NCAA track meet until this year. Fourth indoors, fourth in XC. It's an amazing senior story. Loved it. Great, great kick. Amazing. Yeah. On the women, on the men's side, for the most part, except for the 10K, where Devers surprised everybody, the favorites came through. On the women, you know, it, it was the, the, the opposite. One other thing I would like to mention there in terms of the women's race is everyone's, I know John loves the young coaches and I, I defend the old guys. Is this the rise of UVA and Vinland Anna? Michaela Meyer gets the win in the 800. Very impressive. Raved about the coaching staff. She also had never been to NCAAs until this year. Yeah, she was, that's pretty crazy. She was like, she was at Delaware and I think she made sort of an improvement right at the end of her career. And then COVID hit and she didn't really get a chance to show anything in 2020. And now in 2021, it's just been a PR parade and she ends the season by winning NCAA. So that's a really cool story for her. I'm actually not sure. I mean, I assume Nicole Freitag is her, her coach. I'm not sure if like Vin's actually doing the workouts, but obviously he's heading the program. So that's a, a national she, they, she works with both of them. They have a great collaborative relationship. Oh, cool. I mean, yeah, Vince, look, I'm not going to say a bad word. He's a, he's a coaching legend. He's absolutely one of the best coaches uh, we've had in the sport. And then Robert in the men's 800, I thought this was a really weird event because coming in, I kind of thought there were two, like there were a bunch of guys who could win, but two of them were Isaiah Jewett and Brandon Miller. They battled to the line at the West regional and Brandon Miller, the true freshman won that. And then, 
we get to the first round, both of those guys kind of struggle. Like they needed time qualifiers just to make the final. And I was like, we had our prediction contest. You can now actually change your picks after the prelims. So I did that this year. I'm like, those guys aren't winning. Like Charlie Hunter looked really good. He was the NCAA indoor champ. Like he's going to win this race. And then those two just take off and run away from the rest of the field. They both run 144. Brandon Miller, true freshman running 144. That's pretty damn impressive. And Isaiah Jewett running 144.6. I mean, he's, I think both of these guys, you look and they'd be in that mix for the Olympic team. I, I was just surprised how much they dominated that race after not even getting auto qualifiers to the final. Yeah, John, it was very surprising. And the, God, I, I said on the podcast last week that I thought the ability to change the picks would help me. It hurt me because right in the middle of the meet on, on Friday, when Hawker won the 1500, I had Tier winning the 1500. I went in, I'm like, oh my God, he looks amazing. I'm going to put him in. I thought that Wesley Kiptu wouldn't take out the 5K. I'm like, I changed my damn pick. Never doubt your boys. But no, John, what I think this shows is actually something that I always say about the 800. Again, I've annoyed myself as a mid-distance guru. Guys, if you want to like dominate, just have me coach you. But another reason to join the supporters club is because we're offering a free 12-week summer training program um, as part of your VIP membership this year. But I've always said... People think that a tactical race, like a tactical 800 comes down to has the most speed. Same thing with a mile. Like, oh, a tactical mile would help like an 800 runner. No, it does not. Because these people, the people with no endurance are exhausted at the end of an 800 no matter what. So these guys are going to basically close, you know, their final 600 is going to be slow, whether they've gone out super fast or, or, or moderately fast anyway. So on day one, they closed, they went out in 53 and they closed in 54-4. Now, day two, they were definitely way better They went, but because they closed in 53-7-2. But you know what? Three quarters of a second? But their first half, their first lap was over two seconds faster, which is amazing. So they closed faster. But it shows also pe- people are human. You know, they have good days. They have bad days. You're not, uh, you're not a machine, which when we talk about, you know, USAs, this is why I'm not giving up on Lopez Lamont, but we'll get into that later because I want to stick with NCAs. On the sprint action, John, there were some really cool stories. Randolph, Randolph Ross, the son of the coach at NCA&T, wins the 443.85. They win the 4x4, and then their female sprinter, Cambria Sturgis, runs 1074, a little windy, and 22.12. They finished third in the men's meet, fourth in the women's meet. Great showing for the historically uh, black college there. They've really got a great program coming. Yeah, that was that was for me the story of the meet on the sprint side. I mean, USC was they were pretty good. They won the uh, that obviously powered them to the win on the women's side. Uh, and then I thought the LSU true fresh the freshman sprinter from LSU, Sean Burrell, aka the Squall, who won the 400 hurdles in 47 seconds, world under 20 record. I mean, this guy could be an absolute future star. I mean, he'd never run the I don't think he'd ever run the hurdles until this year. And now he's a 47 second guy. So. He's got a huge improvement there. But yeah, North Carolina A&T, I thought was the big thing. Like, I thought when Shikari Richardson ran 10.75 in 2019, I'm like, all right, well, no one's going to, like, that meet record's going to stand pretty much forever. And Sturgis just ran faster, granted it was slightly windy, but that, you know, she's clearly in the mix for, to meet the Olympic team in the 100 too. Same with Randall Ross in the 400. Ran 43.85, and now Fred Curley has scratched the 400. So behind Michael Norman, you know, there looks like there's another spot up for grabs. And that's crazy. Curly's in the one and two, folks. 400 specialists, Fred Curley up until this year, is going for the one and two. And 
also at the NCAA 200 when the the Florida the Florida freshman Joseph Von Boule, I've never seen anyone close like that at the end of a 200. That's I'm talking insane. Usain Bolt, whatever. His close is better, and he wins the two. And this is even before Curley had announced that he was doing the one and two. I thought, oh my God, Noah Lyles might actually not make the U.S. team in the 200. Now, for some reason, we can't quite figure out why Fambula says he's not doing the Olympic trials. The rumor is that he's going to be competing for Liberia. But when I asked him about it in the post-race press conference, why he wasn't running the trials, he just said he couldn't discuss it right now and that he had to wait. So uh, not totally clear why he's not running. He would be fun to have in the trials, though, because that guy... Again, like it's always good when you got a closer in any race, like someone who comes from way back. That's why ro- watching Robbie Andrews was so fun. And Fambula would have been that in a 200. I can't wait for the Olympic trials. I mean, as distance fans, we think, oh, the 1500 is loaded. Some of these other events in the US, it's like the 200. We have six of the top eight guys in the world. I mean, you could be literally be number six in the world, five in the world, and not make the team. It's absolutely insane. And the other big story at NCAA's USC coach Carol Smith Gilbert. Wins the national title on the women's side. And then the next day, it's announced she's taking over for, how do you say his name, John? Petros Kiprianu. I don't know if I got the pronunciation right of uh, Kiprianu, but I know the Georgia Petros. coach who won two NCAA titles is apparently getting out of college coaching. No one really knows what he's doing. That was on the message board. Shout out to the message board posters. Someone like said, oh, look, they're all in the transfer portal. I guarantee he's leaving. He said this like two months ago. Ended up being true. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of... Um, it's it's great to see. I've always thought that I've never had a track and field. One of the neat things about track and field is the only sport where I've seen where women coach men. And I think it should happen in all sports. There's no reason why Gino, I mean, uh, Pat Summit, the woman Tennessee basketball coach couldn't have coached men or whatever. So she's going to be, she's going to be coaching both the men and women in Georgia, but she's the first female to coach um, men at the university of Georgia. Yeah. And I mean, Carol Smith Gilbert, what she's done in Los Angeles at USC over the last, you know, decade or so is pretty remarkable. That program, I mean, they have a strong history, but she basically revived it and they started winning championships again. So many great sprinters have come out of that program. And you saw it again with, you know, Anna Cockrell and TT Terry, and they won the four by one, you know, they, again, they're a sprint powerhouse. I was just kind of surprised, like, you know, not to be, uh, just like if I would rather, where would I rather live, Los Angeles or Georgia? I mean, I think LA would be kind of more, more fun, but you got to think of it from a financial perspective. If you're getting, I assume she's getting a raise to go work at Georgia. Also, the cost of living is significantly cheaper around Athens than it would be in LA. You know, I'm sure she's making out like, uh, you know, she's going to be very well compensated. It's going to be a, a nice few years for her in Georgia. And with the talent they already have there, if she can just keep recruiting like she she has been, I expect Georgia to continue to be a powerhouse. It'll be more interesting to see what happens to USC when now she's gone. Well, let's be honest, John. Almost every every program in the SEC is a powerhouse. I mean, they're all that's, that's a fair point. They're all so good. They all. I mean, you can finish fifth in the SECs and win win NCAs almost any given year, depending on how good your total studs are. I think she's doing it. She's from the South. It's interesting because her son plays football at USC, but money goes a lot farther in Georgia than it does in Southern California. And two, the U.S. SEC has got a lot more money than the Pac-12. So, you know, I don't know how much she was making. Let's say she's making three, 400000 She doubles that to six six or eight or whatever. That's a lot more money. So, I'm interested to know, Robert, though, with Rye Benjamin and Michael Norman, they've been based and training in L.A., and they still work with Carol Smith-Gilbert and with Quincy Watts. 
what's their future? Are they going to, is Quincy Watts going to stay at USC? Will he go to Georgia? And if they both go, does that mean Ryan Michael will relocate to Georgia and follow them? Or are they going to stay in LA? I mean, Michael is a California kid. So uh, I'm just kind of curious what that's going to do for their futures. Well, I think that's the big question I want to know is where did the dominoes fall? Who's going to get that USC job? It's a very prominent job. One of the most historical successful programs in the, in the country. And the natural thing would be to think they promote Quincy. He gets the job, but if he doesn't, I've heard some rumblings about Robert Johnson from Oregon coming down. Then who gets the Oregon job? I mean, once one high-profile coach goes to another place, then another one's got to fill, fill the spot. So yeah. that's why the most popular thread on the let'srun.com every year is the coaches opening threads because all the coaches want to figure out who's going where and where to apply and whatnot. Wait, Robert, do you think you could apply for the, for the USC head coaching job and sort of try to capitalize on some confusion and make them think that you're the Oregon Robert Johnson and then you'd be the head coach at USC? I think well, you should just say, like, you should you find the aspects of your your resume that overlap with his and emphasize those. So you say part of a conference powerhouse, you know, part of several conference consecutive 13, conference. I'll just say Robert Johnson, I'll put 13, what was it? I think it was 13 conference championships in 10 years. Because Oregon doesn't have, that's more than Oregon, actually, John, because they don't do indoor track. So I won more conference titles. Um, maybe I just put 10. I don't have to put all 13, right? Yeah. 10. There you go. You put that. You say prominent member of the running community. You're always in. You're in Eugene very frequently. You One, know? Dined at Tracktown Pizza. Runners World. One of fifty most influential people in running. NCAA Assistant Coach of the Year. Regional Assistant Coach of the Year. I just put these things very, very. Um, don't put too much detail. Don't say like Northeast Regional Assistant Men's Distance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't say yeah. that. That's All right. Good point. I'll be in California next week. Really? Oh, you're going to be in California, but not in Oregon for the Olympics. No, conference. taking the job. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that right. makes sense. So, yeah, Robert, you, so you mentioned Tritown Pizza. I got to say, I haven't been to Eugene since the 2018 NCAA meet, and Tritown Pizza is one of the things I miss the most. It's not – look, I'm not going to say it's the best pizza, but I do kind of enjoy it. But the just the – you know, the – track memorabilia on the walls going there after an NCAA meet and just grabbing a pitcher of beer and getting a pizza. All the pizzas are named for track events. I really, Oh, it's one of my favorite places in Eugene and I'm going to be there. I, I'm flying out Thursday. It's my first time on a plane since March, 2020. We'll have boots on the ground for the trials. I'll be tracked down pizza. I'll be at the new Haywood field for the first time. It's very exciting. I'm sorry. You won't be able to make the trip, Robert, uh, but Weldon will be there for the second half as well. So let's run is going to be going out to cover the trials. And I think we got to start with our, our trials preview here. The meet starts on Friday. We're two days away at this point. It's very exciting. And we've got a great final on day one. It's the men's 10,000 meters. Now our preview of this event, I, it's already up on the site. If you haven't read it, go read it, get to know, you know, who, who you're going to be watching. But the top three seeds based on, you know, seed time are all Bowman track club athletes. Lopez Lamont, who's the two-time defending champion. Grant Fisher, who's the U.S. leader. And Woody Kincaid. Chadrick Kipchichi is a scratch. He's injured. He's made the last few U.S. teams. Leonard Correa, who made the U.S. team in 2016, 2017, 2019. He hasn't been running well this year. He doesn't have the Olympic standard. You need the, this is the one event where you need the standard. Uh, really, like there's not going to be any world ranking places available. So, I find it unlikely anyone's going to be able to run 27-28 in this race. It's going to be kind of warm uh, in Eugene. It's going to be happening at 7.30 before the sun sets. But 
you know, here are the guys with the standard. It's Lamont, Fisher, Kincaid, Ben True, Eric Jenkins, Emmanuel Bohr, Joe Klecker. Three of those seven guys will be your Team USA. Robert, do you think it's a Bowman sweep, or do you think one of these other guys can break it up? Folks, remember, the road to the trials is sponsored by On. Of course, John Klecker is going to make the team, John. <laughs> now, I do. The Bowman Track Club, had they got kicked in the balls, and they went down, and oh, my God. Again, folks, the inappropriate joke about the Bowman Track Club will be coming up at the end of the show. I can't you. believe you're Good. teasing this <laughs> inappropriate joke anyway. It's pretty All inappropriate, right. but it's the type of thing you would say at the water cooler to a close friend. Um, yeah, I, I read your preview, and you picked – Grant Fisher's been incredible. Um, I, I don't see why he would lose this race. I think if this was running cool conditions, I'd have no doubt that he runs this race. The one thing I've always said, the running in hot weather, and it's going to be pretty hot. It's going to be in the 70s, which is good because it's going to be really much hotter than that in Tokyo. Um, is running in hot weather is sometimes a different sport for different people. But, you know, I, I think he'll be fine. I, I think Fisher wins it, as, as do you. Um, but then you go Lamong and then Emmanuel Bohr. I'm going to go Kincaid and Lamong. I don't know about the order, but one, two, three, Bowerman sweep. And then it'll be a big story that the teammates of the band runner make the team, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Jerry needs a, Jerry, Jerry needs to pick me up. And this is going to happen there. Although I like, I, I like meeting Bohr and getting to know him at those indoor meets that I was doing. That would be cool. Um, if he made it, but I talked about this, you know, in terms of the men's 800 at NCAAs, those guys drew it and Miller looked so bad in round one and they did better. Lopez Lamont did not look good in running that 1320 a few weeks ago. I know that he won the race, but his teammates were in another heat and they ran like 13 0 something or no, 13 10 something. They 10, ran about right. the same time. Okay, well, whatever. But they looked better doing that. And, but just look, he hadn't raced in over a year. And it reminds me of this year. You know, Adam Goucher, 2004, maybe 2008, got into the tri- trials, hadn't been racing, scraped into the final on time and then won the damn thing the next day. So I think a lot can happen in three weeks. So I think how can you count this out guy based on his pedigree? That being said, if Lopez is terrible, it would not surprise me. I guarantee you Joe Clacker will be with the lead pack with 800 meters. I think that a lot of these people will be with the lead pack with 800 meters. I think ultimately Lamont will make that team. Um, I think Kincaid also will make that team. But I'm much more confident percentage-wise that Clacker's with this lead group, you know, when the kicking starts 800 to go, whatever it is, than I am Lamont. Does that make sense to you, John? I, okay, yeah. I guess you're saying that Lamont has the highest ceiling, but you think that Klecker, you she's more likely to just be in the he's more consistent, I guess you're saying. Um but, but you know it's interesting. Klecker's got he just ran three thirty seven flat, but Kincaid's got three thirty seven fifteen hundred PV. I mean, again, time or times meaningless or just guys just really good. I mean you got three fifty six, three fifty five milers that are closing out ten Ks now. Yeah. So I look I think I think Klecker's in the mix. I think there are a few guys like pretty much everyone with the standard has a legit chance chance to make the team, apart from maybe like Ben True, I look, he he's he's run 2714 this year, but his last couple of races just have not been good. I mean, he got blasted by Ben Flanagan in his most recent race in a 5K. And I just don't like all these guys he's gonna have to beat are better than Ben Flanagan. No disrespect to Ben, who's he's a good runner in his own right. But I I just am surprised like I don't think he's been quite the same guy in training or in races since that 2714. And he remember he lost in that race to Grant Fisher and Woody Kincaid. He got out kicked at the end. 
So he was already at a deficit and needed to get better. And instead it's, he's either stagnated or got worse. So I did pick Ben a few weeks, a few months ago when we made our early picks. I think I picked Ben to make the team. I think I'm going to renege from that, but I do think Jenkins is kind of a wild card. He looked great in December, but not as great this year, but then he just won a 5k in Portland a couple of weeks ago. And that looked pretty solid. So he's in the mix. Emmanuel Bohr has had a terrific year. I really, I mean, I picked him to make the team. I think he'll, he's going to do it. But him, Klecker, wouldn't be shocked if they upset one of those guys. And it could be, Woody could be the second Bauman guy on the team ahead of Lamont. I'm pretty confident Bauman will get two on there. I don't know about three. And I also want to know, when was the last time like a, a club like this swept, like if they sweep, when was the last time a club swept three the top three in an event? Like, can if you're listening to this, please email me, jonathangolt at letsrun.com if you can remember. Because I'm str- I can't really think of one off the top of my head, and I don't think Bauman's ever done it, to my knowledge. All right, anything else on the 10K? Or shall we move on? We got a lot. Of, we're going to try to preview all the finals, uh, the the at least the distance finals of the first half of the meet, which is the first four days. So beyond the 10K, the next one up, well, is women's hundred on day two. Then you don't actually have any distance finals on day two or three. It's all sprint stuff and distance prelims. So. Should we talk about the men's 100 real quick? That's on day three on Sunday night, Robert. Well, women's 100, we think Shikari Richardson. Although Sturgis is pretty damn good. I'd go with Shikari. I think Sturgis is, I mean, Sturgis at this point is probably on the team with how, how good she was in that race. But, you know, that it's a still a strong event for the United States. Uh, I'm kind of interested to see what some of the old guard, like, you know, English Gardner, can she get on one more team, whether is Tori Bowie even running anymore? I haven't seen her in results for ages, but like Twanisha Terry, I mean, she's the number two seed, uh, 1089 based on, you know, wind legal personal best this year. So tomorrow, Tiana Bartoletta is run 1096. I'm not sure if she's entered in there as well, but she made the team in 2016. So I think, I mean, I think Shikari and then maybe the two, it might be the two collegians, Twanisha Terry and Cambria Sturgis. Aaliyah Hobbs, the 2018 U.S. champ, still there. But I think of the top five in the U.S. right now, three are collegians, and then one's Shikari Richardson, who's 21 years old. Speaking of metal sweeps, John, you said the men's 100. Talking about top te- tough teams to make. U.S. is currently one through six in the world 100-meter fastest times of the year. So Justin Gatlin may be gone, but... So it's kind of wide open. That's what I, I think. Wait, wait, think of this, Robert. This Olympic trials hundred could be better than the Olympic final. If you got the top six guys in the world this year, all in one race, only three of them are going to be in Tokyo. And no, I don't think any of those are go- guys are Noah Lyles, right? Noah Lyles is only tied for 12th on the U S list at ten Oh three. Yeah. I'm confident Bromel makes the team after that. Oh, I don't know. And I just, I gotta, I gotta give Fred Curley, just a, uh, some claps for, for taking out the big ones, the cojones, and put them on the table. I, I just can't believe he's, he's dropping down in the fence in an Olympic year. But he ran 1-4, didn't go well. I thought, oh, maybe he's going to get used to it. But maybe he just thinks he's better at this event. So it's, it's pretty interesting there. Well, well Robert, I just got to think, all right, let me, if I, re- I'm going to read off the list of the top guy, 10 guys in the country this year based on season's best. It's Trayvon Bromel, Marvin Bracey, Isaiah Young, Fred Curley, Ronnie Baker, Javon Martin, Cravon Gillespie, Kyrie King, Justin Gatlin, and Micah Williams, Mikai Williams. If I read that list to you, 
on January 1st, 2020. And I said, this is going to be the top 10 in the US in the 100 meters heading into the Olympic trials. I think, I think your brain would explode because again, let's go back to where we were January 1st, 2020. So this is a little over, this is a year and a half ago. Bromel was just done, right? He'd barely raced at all. He just looked injuries, his career's over. Marvin Bracey was trying to play football. Isaiah Young, he's kind of old. He hadn't really done anything much. In the, I mean, he'd been around in the 100, but he'd never been like, he wasn't a 9-8 guy. Uh, Fred Curley, 400 runner. Why the hell would he be on the 400 in the 100 list? Ronnie Baker, okay, that makes sense. Javon Martin, who the hell's that? Cravon Gillespie, okay. Kyrie King, yeah, they've been running for Oregon. Justin Gatling, not totally surprised. Bakai Williams, never heard of him because right now he's 19 years old. So it's just kind of insane how different this event is and you'd be saying, where's Noah Lyles and where's Christian Coleman? It's just insane how different this event is than how we thought it was just 18 months ago. And it just shows you the incredible depth of U.S. printing. So, yeah, where's Noah Lyles? Where's Christian Coleman? And we're still one through six in the world. Now, apparently they're tied. Someone's tied at number six. And, John, one of the names that's not even on there, Travis Laird, who may be I – mean, he is the top collegiate spinner, right? All right. Travis Laird, his name is Terrence Laird. Two, he's not – he's scratched the 100. He is not running it at the trials. Smart move, because after he won the 100, I was assuming he would dominate the 200. That's his specialty, and he just didn't look great there. So I think that's a good coaching move. Oh, wait a second. Javon Martin also scratched from the trials, so he's not even running the, He's not running it either. That's interesting. He's scratched from the 100. And I'm just looking on the list of <clears throat> USATF status of entries, and Nigel Tolton's name caught my eye. Do you remember? He entered – wow, this is kind of crazy – Everyone else who tried to enter the meet had a time of nine or 10 something. He had a time of 11.04 and tried to get into the meet and did not get entered. Uh, it did not get accepted, obviously, because it's 11.04. But Nigel Tolton, do you remember who that is, Robert? No, I do not. Uh, it's the freeze. The guy from the Atlanta Braves games who would try to out sprint people. That's his real name. Well, they should have let him run it. I'm serious. It'd be great publicity to have the freeze in there. No, that'd be a freaking joke. An 11 uh, second guy getting into the 100 Olympic trials. That's a, that's a, that would be an absolute disgrace and uh, an insult to anyone who should have legitimately qualified. I'm sorry. No well, way. Maybe they should put him in the 1500 because they're only going to have like 27 people in the first round when they're going to 24. So just to fill the field there. Kind of a joke, but pet peeve. Again, remember when someone falls in the 1500, don't tell you. Remember, I told you. That would happen. But um, speaking of USATF letting people in and out of the field, can I give a shout-out to USATF? Because I've been so critical of them over the years. They have let in Gonzaga's James Moira. This guy had like a 28-30 PR, and he ran 27-50 at NCAAs, finished ninth. Imagine running 27-50, not scoring a point in NCAAs. But Coach Pat Tyson didn't, didn't enter him. So the entries had, for USAs had, entered, had ended before NCAs, even though you could update your entry with results. So the coaches that were really smart entered people with bad times, although I guess you got to pay for the entry. And then if they improved them, they could actually get in based on their time. But USATF said, like, look, this guy deserves to get in. Although I guess there's probably one person who's getting out now. This, Yes, this is the controversy, Robert. There's always controversy with this stuff. So they allow James Mora in, and they expanded the field to 24 people, which means Galen Rupp is also in the 10K, by the way. We didn't even mention him, but he's basically just running that take a few laps at Haywood Field. But if they did not include the guy, Zachary Panning, 
who would have been in the field if they had exp- if they had followed their own rules and expanded the rule the field to twenty four, taking you know, ignoring Moara because they didn't actually follow the procedure with him. So, I think there's a very simple solution here. You just make it a twenty five person field. You say, okay, we're letting Moara in because he got the standard, but we're also letting Zach Panning in because he would have been in the field if we followed the rules correctly. I think that's a win-win. One extra guy is not going to break anyone's back in the 10K, especially when you've got like 50 freaking people in the women's 10K. Okay. I got to take back my, my, my rare praise for USATF. This is insane. Who's this guy? We need to start a free. What's Zach Panning. He runs for Hanson Brooks. Okay. This is absurd. There should be a lawsuit. You, you got to follow your rules. When I mean, we sued them once and they lost, we'll sue them again. They, they Again, they don't care about the guy, the last guy on the totem pole. It's insane. This is absolutely insane. I take back everything I said. Wait, going to Rupp, you mentioned this in the podcast, I mean, in the in your preview. Did Mike Smith tell you he's going to run a few laps and then drop out? No, this no. This isn't really clear. No, I just, I mean, I watched him run the, the Portland Track Festival and the 10K, and here in 28 flat, he got blasted at the end of the race by Suguru Osako. And... It just seemed like, look, he knows he's not in great track shape right now. I don't think, I mean, as great as his history is, I don't think in two weeks or three weeks he'll have been able to become some guy who's contending for a spot on the team. I just don't think he can kick like that anymore. I think he's he's in the race because he's never run at the New Haywood Field. He's an Oregon legend. Oh, he wants okay, to but- go back. He just wants to be in town for the trials. He has to be there for team processing for the marathon anyway. So this is just a chance for him to sort of get a run in in the new place. He'll see the fans in Hayward. That, that's why I, I get the appeal there. And I don't think, I just think he's not going to be a serious contender. I should, I did a poor editing job because you didn't make that clear, John. I thought I did. I, I, I mean, I question your reading comprehension there, but uh, maybe that's, maybe it's on me. We'll have to have the readers decide. All right, moving but, on. But I think Rupp, it would not surprise. I think it'd be kind of cool. It wouldn't shock me if he stays with the leaders until the final kicking really begins. Well, well th- that's one thing. Remember, he did that in the Olympic trials 5K final in 2016. He knew he really didn't have the best kick there. And so he just kind of was at the front and he was there and then he got blasted over the last lap. But it's interesting. Guess who's a great, like if this thing's hot and it's sunny at 730 or whatever, guess who's a great heat runner? Guess who has great endurance? Guess who's like, you know, well, he was a pure 10K guy with the strength for a while. Like, that all kind of sounds like a Rupp, Galen Rupp would a race Galen Rupp would do well in. I do think there's enough good guys. I never again, Rupp doesn't have the standard. So he's not, I don't think he's gonna run 2720 and get on the team. But it's gonna be interesting, you know. Maybe if it turns out into some just carnage, he's a tough guy. He does well in the heat. Maybe he can finish in the top 10 or the top five or something like that. But I don't really expect him to be any sort of a factor. Speaking of factors, I do expect Robert Brandt also of Georgetown to be there right at the end. It wouldn't shock me if he finishes top three because he was right there. He looked good. He had a smile on his face when he was behind, what was it, Mance? Like 200 meters to go. I thought, oh, he's going to win this thing. And then he ended up like fourth or something. It wouldn't shock me if we have a Natasha Rogers type situation where he makes top three but doesn't make the team. I'd be pretty shocked if a guy who was fourth at NCAAs finishes third at the Olympic trials, especially since two of the guys who, <laughs> two of the guys who beat him at NCAAs or in this race. Wow, this is we've got the taps and the breaking news music. Okay, Robert, what is it? You know me, I have to play my two musics during the podcast. John, 
you talked about getting credentialing for the Olympic trials. Do you see that? What is that? Uh, I can't tell. You're not holding it up. My Tokyo press pass is here. I don't understand it. The Japanese people don't want it, but it looks like the Olympics is going on. I'm very excited. We can't actually interview anyone in the USA. USA Olympic trials, full fans. We can't, or not full fans, a lot of fans. We can't interview anyone there. NCAs, we can't interview anyone there. Tokyo, we don't even know if there's going to be fans. There's no American fans, but they're going to let me go in there and hole up and go from my hotel to the track, apparently, and interview people. So I'm very excited. Uh, wait, so I'm just kind of confused. Robert, I got to tell you, the breaking news music, we use it when there's breaking news, which means it's just happened, and when it's news, which means it's relevant and serves the public interest. And I think you're getting your credential doesn't meet either criteria because I know for a fact this credential arrived yesterday, not during the middle of the show. And two, no one cares if you get a credential or not. It's like, it's not a big deal. John, I'm trying to entertain the masses. There's some guy that hates his job or really he's quietly he hates his wife and he doesn't want to admit it and get the divorce. And this is the little bit of joy they have every week. I was oh, trying wait, to Robert it. gets to some some guy I listen to on the radio gets to go to the Olympics. That's great. I actually held up a piece of white paper because I didn't have the damn credential. But it just <laughs> made me think the credential did come. And when it did come, my neighbor was outside. I was all excited. I was so excited. I, he like rolled down the window. He said, what happened? I said, look, my Olympic credential. So it was a rare to, to feel like a kid at Christmas felt good. Rob, I will say that I got my credential in the mail yesterday as well. And it is one of the best feelings you can have. It's just like, oh my God, it's, it's going to happen. And I get to go. Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, yeah. Now, John, I haven't been to an event with you in a long time. I'm not, are you opposed to sharing a hotel room with me? Weldon's in charge of the booking. I think y'all, when y'all go, y'all, y'all do it like the IAAF. You guys like get suites and have your own private room. What? What are you talking about? I said, well, I'll be staying not- with John. I was like, I'll be staying with John, right? And he's like, what? No, we get our own rooms. I'm like, really? That's kind of expensive well actually it's it's interesting in okay the world championships in doha me and weldon did have separate rooms um and it was a very nice hotel there as well but i i would i don't mind i've shared rooms with you before i don't mind like as long as long as we have a hotel room in tokyo i don't mind sharing it with you especially since we're both fully vaccinated all right shall we go to day four the final so day four is going to be one of the best days of the meet if you're a distance fan at the Olympic trials, because we've got the women's 1500 final, the men's 800 final and the women's 5,000 meter final. And just let me repeat shame on USATF for putting the women's 1500 and 5k finals on the same day. That's just ridiculous. Uh, like Jenny Simpson complained about it a couple days ago when the USATF press call, well, she didn't complain. She just said she wished it had been possible. I'm going to complain for her. Can complain for her? I mean, come on. If Jenny Simpson didn't make the 1500 team, would you be excited? To, would you want to see her come back and try and make it in the 5K? Of course you would. That would be fun for the sport, except the schedule doesn't make it possible. So that is a shame. Shame on USATF for designing the schedule that way. Yeah, and we've never really tried to design our own schedule that's better. But honestly, if I was the head of USATF or World Athletics, I would spend months, weeks. I would hire the computer programmers to do it for the MLB. I would literally, I think the most easy, the easiest way to better promote the sport is to have a better schedule, if it's at all possible. I mean, you would think that they do have a maximal schedule, but I'm pretty sure they don't because this one makes no sense. Yes, the double's hard at, at Worlds, but you'd want to have, particularly if Houlihan had been in the meet, her, the option to do both in case somehow she tripped or something. 
But well, you, John, you say she's going to trip because the, the there's going to be a fall in the fifteen hundred final, causing it to be rerun. But Robert, remember, USATF they had the perfect schedule. They had the ten k in the first half of the meet before the five k. It was fine, and then a few weeks, a few months ago, with zero explanation, USATF has still never explained this decision. Why they changed the trials schedule? Uh, actually, maybe they did. Sorry, sorry. Maybe they did say to more closely mimic the Tokyo schedule. I'm not sure, but. They just announced, when, certainly not when they announced it. They had this schedule in place and then they changed it for no freaking reason. So uh, we know that it's possible because the original schedule had the double doable 15-5. Okay, women's 1500. Jenny Simpson's odds just keep going up and up and up. Shelby Houlihan is out. So Perrier's on the team. That's the only lock. Then we've got to figure out two more spots here. Um If you look at the U.S. list, Shannon Osika is second at 405.72, and then there's a big gap to Elise Cranny. 402. Kate Grace, is she even in the 1500? Do we know, John? She's not. So and Grace Cranny is- as well. Cranny's going to be focusing on the 5K, 10K. I think the 1500's there just sort of as an emergency. She might. It's kind of unclear because I, I no. asked Pascal Dobert, who's the BTC assistant coach, like, is she running the 5K? And he said, well, she's only in the 15 if something goes wrong in the 5K. The 15 heats are before the 5K heats, so I don't know if that means she's going to run both and then scratch from the 15 after the 5K prelims. I don't know, but it seems like 5K, 10K is the focus for her. Well, I'm very confused by this because the 1500 prelim is at 403 and the 5,000 prelim is at 554. So there's no honest effort rule, but... You could be in the 5,000 in case, you know, you get tripped or whatever, don't make it out of the 5,000. Then you run the 1,500 meter later, but the 1,500 meters first. So I'm assuming she's not going to run a 1,500 meter prelim an hour and a half before the 5,000 prelim. That's what I, that's what I thought too. That's why I kind of was confused by exactly what he meant. Like she wanted to keep her spot, but I kind of think the 5k, 10k is going to be her focus. I do think if she runs this event, she has a shot to make the team, but then, okay. So yeah, you look at the U S list, you got Puria, you got Asika, and then you got Cranny, and then that's they're kind of evenly spaced, 358, 4 flat, 402 by season's best. And then you have 10 women who've run either 404 or 405. Uh, none of them have made an Olympic team before. None of them are named Jenny Simpson, who's 18th on the U.S. list this year at 406. And this group includes Danny Jones, Helen Schlachtenhofen, Heather McLean, Corey McGee, Grace Barnett, Danny Aragon, Sarah Lancaster, Nikki Hiltz, Ali Cash, Sinclair Johnson. I mean, and to me, the 1500, I mean, 404, 405, I don't really view, read too much into season's best. I think pretty much all of those women could be in the mix. And the the question is, do you trust the experience of Jenny Simpson? Do you trust the talent of someone like Sinclair Johnson, who was in amazing form in 2019, has been running well at 800 this year, but has struggled in the 1500, or do you take a, a, a risk on one of these other women um, who, who are in the mix, like Danny Jones? She, we know she has talent, but she hasn't really – she's PR'd in her last two meets coming into this one. She's kind of rounding into form, but she doesn't have the standard, but she should get in on ranking. I don't know. Like, who stands out to you from this group, Robert? Well, it's crazy that Cranny, who I think is locked for the five and the tens, could make the team in the 1500. So it's kind of a – I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it's a poor group. I think it's going to be Perrier. Osika, I'm, I'm sticking with my original pick, Sinclair Johnson. 
I think this actually helps her. With, with, with Houlihan out of here in Puria, they just might just set a fast pace and it was going to be a super fast race. I don't think, I think if, if Puria wants to go out hard, people aren't going to go with her. They're just going to let her go. You know, I mean, she's unbeatable. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think she'd probably run in the front and then blast it from like, you know, 800 or 1,000. But I think she may get away from people pretty easily. And then, regardless, I think it's more likely to be a slower race in the back of the pack. Although maybe some of these people are trying to get the standard. It's a good point, John. But I just think that this, if it's a slow race, Sinclair's got pretty good endurance. She's got pretty good kick. I, I think she could get the team. But I'm definitely not sleeping on Jenny Simpson. I think that with – I mean, her odds have just doubled or tripled. One thing that's interesting, John, is think about this. You may be entering a certain event thinking, I can't beat Houlihan. Like, you're much more likely to run the five because you think, okay, hurry, hurry, hurry. And Houlihan are in it. I'm not going to bother to enter the 1500. And then Houlihan's out, and yet you didn't enter the race, and you're out. So it's smart that somebody like, um, I wonder, to be honest, John, you know, like if it's inside information, like um, with Cranny, like they knew Houlihan was going to be banned, so there was a potential that she banned. So they entered all three cases just in case Cranny says, you know what, I'm going to go to the 1500. I don't think well, she should. But. I think it's smart in any situation to enter as many events as possible at the trials, just as ins- for insurance purposes. I got to say, so yeah, I agree with you, Robert. Puri is going to win this race. I don't see any way how she loses. I like Osika for second. I just think she's been running really well. I mean, she beat Sabrina Sutherland and Chanel Price in an 800 a couple weeks ago in Nashville. Those are good 800 runners. Like they could like what, they could make the team possibly at the 800 and Shannon Osika beat them. So I was impressed by that. Third place, third spot in the team. I'm going Jenny Simpson. I'm sorry. I just, I got to think, I, I know I sort of, after her Nashville race, I'm like, oh, maybe she, I just don't really think she can make the team after that. But the more I think about it, one, Shelby's gone. It's an extra spot open. But also just, like, there. if there's one person in the field who is going to get the most out of themselves on race day, who is going to make the right decisions, who is not going to go out too hard, who is going to measure their kick, who is going to be strong in the final 100, it's Jenny Simpson. And with the way she's been running this year, maybe that's only good for fifth or sixth. But I just trust, I don't think she's going to screw up and cost herself a spot on the team by doing something stupid. And I also think if I pick against her and she makes the team, I'm going to look at myself I'm an idiot. I'm like, Jenny, she still ran 406. Like, you know, I'm going to look at myself a couple weeks from now and say, why would I have ever bet against the best American miler of all time? So I'm picking Jenny Simpson. I think she makes a fourth Olympic team. Why would you pick against the best American all of all time? Because she's not in the meet. Shelby will not be running the meet. I said best, not fastest, Robert. How many global medals does Shelby have? None. And apparently she's going to have none. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't want to stomp on her. Like Shelby's obviously an amazing athlete. I have no doubt. I'm pretty confident she would have medaled at least once during the next four years. But Jenny has four medals, including a world title. I think she's the best ever in that event. Okay. This is going to be a record-long podcast. Let's do the men's eight real quick. I think this is going to be a fascinating event because basically coming into the year, we viewed Brazier and Hopple is unbeatable. Not unbeatable, but his locks for the team. And Clayton Murphy has got an Olympic medal from the last Olympics. Strong third-place candidate. But maybe I should have played the breaking news here. I've heard that Hopple may be injured. Has not raced since May 9th, John. Now, I think he's good enough. He's got some leeway to work with here. But, you know, I mean, Evan Jager looked pretty good on what year was, what day was that when when, when he ran that 2K? 
That was early May probably, right? And now he's not even in the trials. So, yeah, what what I heard, I asked Mark Wetmore, uh, Bryce Hobble's agent, about this. And obviously, you know, agents, you got to take it with a grain of salt. They don't always want to be forthcoming. But what he said, he said, Bryce is doing well and on his way to Eugene today. He didn't run the 600 in Boston, the Adidas Boost Games. That's the meet that Mark Wetmore puts on. He didn't run that as a precaution, and he's been able to make final preparations and training. So it does sound like if he's not running the race as a precaution, there is some sort of issue there. But I still think Bryce is good enough, and if they they seem fairly happy with where he's where he's at, I think he's. I certainly think there's a gap between the top two, and I think that if he's you know eighty five percent or something, he has enough leeway on the rest of the field to still make the team. Well, anyways, so my team's going to be uh, Brazier, Hopple, Murphy. I'm not changing it. I, th- I, I normally a lot of times you see a college guy sneak on the team, like Andrew Weeding or something like that. Jewett, Jewett, and Miller. Are, are both great, but if Brazier could make it as a college freshman, why would Brandon Miller? And, you know, I think that actually they just ran NCAs. It's going to be three rounds. I think that benefits a miler. So that's why I'm going with that. Um, Robert, I wanted to bring one thing up about this event. Brazier on the USATF media call a couple of days ago, he was asked, you know, he's entered in both the 1500 and the 800. And he was asked, is there any chance you run the 1500 as well? And he said, you know, it's certainly a possibility. And I found that really interesting because I didn't think that was a possibility for, that he was going to want to double. He's, he said he hates running the mile. He hates the 1500. It's not his favorite event. And I couldn't, like, maybe it's just, oh, if something falls and something goes horribly wrong, <clears throat> it's a backup plan. But I didn't get that sense. I got the sense that like he might actually legitimately want to be trying trying to do this, and I think that would be that'd be fascinating if he actually goes for the double. Yeah, and it wouldn't shock me if he's top three if he does go for it. But if he doesn't go for the double and scratches, USATF had better fill the field again. In the past, they haven't always done that. Oh my God, I'm going to go on a USATF rant. All right, women's five thousand, John. Before we get to the Ritzenheim interview and the inappropriate joke, okay? Yeah, women's five k. I mean. Again, this is an event. Well, like we already made the complaint about the schedule. You're not going to see, like, Jenny Simpson's declared. Shelby was declared. She's not going to be running. But you got to start with the Bauman women, which is Carissa Schweizer, second fast ever in the US, 1426. Her entry time is over 20 seconds better than anyone else in this field. So you would think, you know, she should be your logical favorite, but she's only raced, you know, once since February. And that was at the Portland Track Festival. And she didn't really look all that. She ran 14, 15 flat, which is only, you know, it's kind of so-so by her standards. And she got beat by Jessica Hall, Andrea Sakafi, and Julianne Staley. I mean, Jessica Hall, those aren't like, what, like if you were thinking Carissa Schweizer, oh, could she be in the medal mix after 2020, which we were thinking after that 1426, that was not super encouraging. So, she does have the pedigree. You'd probably say she's the, I mean, do you still think she's the favorite, Robert? No. Cranny. Yeah, I think Cranny beat her in the 10K earlier this year. I think Cranny probably is the favorite in this race. Vanessa Fraser is 14.48, but she's not, she hasn't been in that kind of form. I think, I mean, the women I'm looking at for that third spot or second spot, if Schweizer doesn't make it, I'm not sure. Josette Norris has been in fantastic form. She's been winning races under Chris Fox running 1451. Rachel Schneider has been very good the last couple of years. She made the team in 2019. She's run 1452. 
I think those are the ones I'm going to be looking at. So if some combination of Schweizer, Cranny, Norris, and Schneider, uh, I think those are going to be the four for three spots. Yeah, because 1453, Emily Systems opted just for the 10th day. Ali Buchowski at 1457 is the only other American under 15 this year. She is in the five, right? She is in the five, and I do. she could be a factor as well. I mean, I don't think she's... Right. I, I think this team is easy to pick. I was, I was kind of confused, but now I'm, I'm looking at it. Cranny's going to make the team. Schweizer's going to make the team, although picking someone banged up makes me a little bit nervous, but 15 flat is not that far off. Although Snyder... And I've heard Snyder's giving... Well, she's she's no longer listed as Under Armour. She's having some sort of dispute with them about wearing their spikes. She might be in the Nike spikes. What was she wearing when she ran that 1452? Do we know? I think Nike. Okay. Well, I, I just think it's going to be Cranny, Schweizer, and Nor- Joseph Rizal, Reebok, but Dross and Track Club. Chris Fox has got Norris. Robbie Andrews' fiance. Robbie, Robbie's not even in the trials, I don't think, is he, John? But just that Norris is... I'm very confident in that pick. Um... Cranny's going to win it. Norris is going to get second. Would shock me if Norris won it. Schweizer's going to sneak on the team, hold on to the team. I think I'm picking the same team, Robert. Uh, I like your logic. I think Cranny wins. I, I mean, I could see the order being different between those three, but I think those are the three best women right now. So, yeah, I'd, I'd pick the same team, Cranny, Schweizer, and Norris. Oh, but before we get to the Ritz podcast... We didn't talk about this. NCAA is one of the cooler stories and one of the stories that ESPN just totally butchered. Ellie Hennis, North Carolina State senior, who's coached by her mom, wins the NCAA title at the same track that her mother won the NCAA title, what, 30 years ago? Yeah. And there's no mention of it during the race. The commentators did not know it. Jill Montgomery, who is the lead analyst, apparently this is her last track meet, her last meet in broadcasting. So, Wait, according to who? According to, to according to her, like she's put on Instagram, I'm, this is my last meet, took a picture. So she used to be a former heptathlete. People were ripping all over her. Normally she's decent. She was had a really bad final broadcast. But I actually wanted to have her on, the Hennis on as the guest um, for this week's show. But we already, we'd already recorded, Weldon recorded the Ritz before he went on, on break. And am I allowed to say this? I didn't hear it from on. So I've heard a rumor that Hennis may be joining the on-athletic group. So it'd be perfect to have them on maybe next week. Yes, I've also heard that rumor. Um, and Luis Grialva as well, who's her boyfriend, heard the kind of a packet could be a package deal. I briefly deal. mentioned it to Weldon. Weldon says, you know, the people are not. Weldon's, you know, in charge of the corporate sponsorship and does these endorsement deals without me. So he told me to get the contact info from you and email them to see if this was true. So, on, well, we love you. By the way, I'm supposed to be handing out audio of the week for free shoes. We had the audio last week. We gave out two pairs of shoes. And, John, I do have a confession to make. There's been a ton of voicemails. There's been a ton of calls, like for months. People have not been hitting the, the extension seven, which is the private voice line, because it's not mentioned on the on the recording. You have to listen. You have to know to hit seven. It's been forwarded. They've been hitting the main office line, which comes to my cell phone, and I don't check my personal cell phone voice. I, I want to you this. There's been some amazing, been some amazing takes on there, and with Shelby's shit hitting the fan, I didn't have time to get them ready for today. So I apologize, people. A lot of supporting club members have been calling in. Some people really butter us up and try to curry favor to get free shoes. That may or may not work. Yeah. By the way, folks, Jonathan Galton, that big piece he wrote on Houlihan, at one point he said, my bosses, the great Robert and Weldon Johnson, have taught me that if something smells like bullshit to call it out. I had to take that line out. I said, John, don't butter up me up that much by calling me great. So 
Thank you, John, though. It was well appreciated, the effort. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll have more voicemails uh, that we can play. It might be hard to get them all in the trials, but certainly after, you know, moving forward, we want to play more of our listener voicemails. But what, I just one more thing on that on thing, Robert. Uh, on is having some sort of, they're having a pre-trials press conference on Thursday night in Eugene. And they mentioned that their coach, Dathan Ritzenhain, will also be making a special announcement on the newest addition to the On Athletics Club team. So one would think if they're adding Ellie Hennis, that would be the moment to do it. Mm, we really should have had her on the trial. Damn it, Shelby, why did Jeff test positive? I could have gotten them to the user voicemail and said I had to stay up. I stayed up to 4 a.m. for you, podcast listeners, so I could put out the full tr- press conference as a podcast so you could listen to it as you drive around. So if you haven't signed up supporting Cup, support us, people. Come on. You'll listen to a daily podcast. We'll break down the night's action, preview the next day. It's going to be amazing. Let's run.com slash subscribe. It's a great deal. Up next, the Dathan Ritzheim interview. Got some big talk about Alicia Monson's current fitness and whether Hubs costs, Hubs costs or should go pro. But first, for the VIC subscribers, the inappropriate joke. Post-editing update. I've just found out I can't actually for some technical reason. Walter normally does the podcast, but I can't drop the joke in right now to the subscribers without everybody else getting it. So VIP subscribers, you'll hear the joke on Friday at the bonus podcast, the Friday 15. We're joined by on athletics club coach, Dathan Ritzenhain. Dathan, we're one week from the trial. I'm getting nervous. I assume you're 10 times more nervous than me. How are you feeling? I'm four times more nervous. I got four athletes going, so I figure it's uh, I'd be nervous for every single one of the races. But <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit a little bit more than just uh, than just you know like the races we've been doing one or two nights. So it'll be a long grind, and uh, all the stress comes to a head. I guess I'm trying to think of the order. So the the 10 case first is that the is that your first one, Joe Clacker? So Joe's going, uh, yes, Joe's going the 10 K, uh, the first night. And so he's got our, he's our first one and, um, yeah, he's fit. He's doing good. He's ready. Uh, I mean, had his probably his last really big workout yesterday and, um, starting to freshen up a little bit now and he looks, he looked good. He looks ready to go. So, um, he'll be, he'll be the first one out there. And then, uh, we have someone going almost every day, really like, um, uh, with the prelims and, um, you know, if, if, if Alicia, um, does both the five and 10, then those prelims there. And so, yeah, it's just, it's like, it's, it's a lot of, a lot, a lot of nights at Hayward field, but it'll be, it'll be exciting. It definitely will be exciting. So I guess I'll give an overview for everyone who doesn't know everybody in detail. We've got Joe Clacker, 10 K he's got the Olympic standard in both that and the five K, but the 10 K's first. So that's a pretty easy decision. Then we've got, you said, Alicia Monson. So you haven't decided. The 5K is first for the women, so it's flipped. And then the 10K, are you are you, are you guys still waiting? What's the mindset there? Yeah, we're, we're looking at the declarations a little bit. But, um, you know, like for me, I just know she's really ready. She's ready for either one. I mean, she just ran a 1500 PB to uh, ran 407. So she's in great shape. I mean... I mean, honestly, like the stuff she's doing compared to earlier this year is so much better. So, um, you know, if, if the 10 K was first, I'd feel better. I, we would just do the, the 10 K is like the focus. So I'm just, it's a hard one to sit and watch the 5 K go by. I'm not sure. I just keep going back and forth. Nothing changes until like the next three days. So I gotta really make a decision, but I mean, I, I mean, I'm leaning towards the 10 K only right now, but, um, but yeah, she's, she's fit and ready. So it's just, 
it's kind of hard to watch the 5k go by too so we'll see does she have say in that the ultimate decisions with you how, does she trust you how does how does that dynamic work i think she, she just trusts me that it, you know what i say you know that i between the what she's doing in practice um i mean she ran an incredible workout yesterday that just that made me say 10k it's just a 10k but then every morning i wake up and i think uh, should we watch the 5k go by too so um but she trusts me 100 percent, and so i think uh i'll make the call here in the next day or two <laughs> but uh but yeah she's is she's uh she's doing great and then uh we have leah fallon and emily orn both in the steeplechase and leah's got the olympic standard and doing great uh and emily uh got her trial standard so she's good and so those guys those those two are right in the middle so if Alicia only does the 10 K and if Joe makes the 10 K early on, you know, I don't know that he would come back and run the five K, but he's got the Olympic standard in both. So, um, it's just, uh, well, we're putting all our eggs in that first day for him. And then, uh, I think, uh, the other ones, you know, we got to get through the round, uh, the first round, but then if they're in the final, Lee is doing great. I mean, she's, she's really fit, really ready. So, um, I'm just, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think the nerves are there for me and and everybody else too. It's normal, you know. Like, uh, and I keep telling them that all the time. I mean, they always want to do other things, do more things. And I was like, this is the plan. We have it set out. I've been there a million times. Just everybody's nervous. Your competitors are nervous. This is just the Olympic trials. That's what happens. I'm nervous, and I just write about it. But it <laughs> seemed like your athletes in general. Well, I'm trying to make a generalization from four athletes but sort of once they hit the standard the olympic standard if they had it they didn't race that event again like joe i mean he hit the 10k standard not late but middle of may 27 23 yep so i, I can see why you're, you're not going to go run a 5k or something after that leah hit it was it 9 28 she ran yep and i don't think she's raced at all since then and then alicia already had it and she just went out and ran two 1500s like what was the thinking with that strategy. So I, I just think that especially the longer races, um, so 10 K's in particular, I, I mean, Alicia is so fit that I, part of me was kicking myself for not having her run the race, uh, the sound meet, um, the five K there. Cause it was a really good field. And I, I think she was ready to run under 14 40 actually. Like, I think she's that fit. Um, but it's still like a five K is a little bit more like I come down and, in intensity a little bit and recover for a week and so i just wanted her to practice racing practice closing well so we put her in two 1500s and she pr'd and closed really well in those races and so that's what she's gonna have to do in the race whether she runs the 5k or the 10k um joe same thing he pr'd a couple weeks after that 10k and the 1500 um and but the 10k takes a little bit you know out of you so he wanted to run a 5k a little bit too but i just like that's just too to me i think that's too close in and and then leah uh she was gonna run at a 1500 at uh uh the portland track classic or Stumptown, but she had a, like a little like tweaked a thing in her neck you know like uh and so she went there we warmed up and stuff and then we just did a workout instead because she was uh she was just didn't want to you know we wanted to get a big session in and so so she did that and she's doing good and so all of them after they hit the standard it was I wanted them to shift their focus like mentally and be completely all in on, on, uh, on the, the trials race when they're going to run that exact distance. And, and so the other races that they did were really just to prepare them for, 
you know, the nerves and all that stuff. But, um, you know, every race, like it, as a, uh, as a professional runner, I was telling this to Ollie the other day, um, you know, every, every race he'd step out and it's first race, he'd step out indoors, three thirty two. you know, you go out it out outdoors. There's no rust busters. Once you become a professional, like it, you, our workouts, some of our workouts are harder, as hard as the races. So, um, so for them, I didn't feel like they had to do the event again. Like I wanted them to focus mentally, have all that, all that prep on that one race. And then physically we can get what we need in practice. And, um, and then if we want to come down to an, uh, an off distance race, I think that that's always good, but, but yeah, like, uh, five K's and 10 K's, there's something that takes out of your body, but also mentally, it's just, you gotta be, you gotta have every last, uh, ounce of, of strength mentally built up in there. You mentioned Ollie. I mean, he's been running great as well. Went to Gateshead and was right on Chariot. I mean, Angerbrinson, sorry. Angerbrinson, yep. That was a great race. Yeah, his first Diamond League. He came in, we, we flew in two days before, didn't sleep at all one night, slept a ton the first night there, and then didn't sleep at all again the, the night before the race. And he just went out and uh, did what he needed to do. And He's been watching that race replayed over and over again just because he, he's thinking about Tokyo and uh, I, I got to be up there. Like, I got to be already, already off his shoulder, you know. He, he's thinking about things like that. And, but he went in that race. There's a lot of pressure for him to, to compete with the other Australians. And he showed up, did it just like he has every other time. And so, yeah, he's running great. And we just kind of put him back into a couple of weeks of just re- restocking the bank a little bit. And, and so now, there's nothing else he could do between now and the, the selection date of the the first of July. So we just had to wait and, you know, prepare him for Tokyo, basically, like he's going to be there. So, um, but he ran, he ran great. It was really, really awesome. I mean, you guys still aren't nervous, are you? He's going to be picked. No, I, I mean, you would think he's ranked eighth in the world and he's a real medal contender, but, but, you know, it's, it's like this, I, he always, he says the same thing and, he says it's not ideal. I say, you know what, we're going to train. There's nothing else you could do right now. I mean, you, you've done everything. So, so let's just get you ready. And, and that's, and that's what we're doing. And so, uh, until the, until we, he gets the official word. Yeah. Like he, he sits there and waits and thinks, but, uh, it's the same thing for the Americans. I mean, they won't, they won't know until the end of the trials either. So, um, so luckily for him, you know, like there's nothing else to do. We just have to, we have to train like he's on the team there and they've, they've picked him and he can be ready for Tokyo. Well, I'm feeling confident about him. You got one Olympian for sure. I guess you have two, right? Well, Alicia, Alicia is probably, she's, she's, uh, as long as she gets to the trials. Yeah. She's ranked 20th in the world and she's running great. And, uh, so her sister is running really good at U of O. So, um, but those are the two Polish steeplechasers. I would say that, you know, they have the chances. So uh, she, she has a very good chance as well. And so, um, so yeah, they're doing great. And, you know, the American system, it's, 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 I think it's the best. If you're a superstar, you probably don't like it, but <laughs> you've gone through, you ran what, four trials yourself, track trials, three track trials. Oh yeah. At least I think four, three anyway, maybe. Yeah, I didn't run 2016, so 04, 08, 2012, yeah. So how do you tell your athletes to deal with the pressure or do you even mention that or getting prepared for the race? You know, you're talking about your, you've looked at some of the start list. Do you go over any of that with them or it's, you know, there's just so much going on. Like it's just not 
a normal race. People's whole careers, for sure, the last four years, it sort of gears up for one day. I don't care how good you are. You're not an Olympian unless you deliver that day. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the nerves are normal and I try to tell them that. And I think it's, a, it's inevitable. And like Joe's always want, he wants to do it like every other thing. I got to throw on these layers. I got to, you know, I got to do all this, you know, like I said, just like, I got the plan, sit down, you know, like set out, just do the plan. And it's no different from the other races that we do. Like the nerves are more, but like the preparation doesn't have to be any different either. And so, um, but I've been there, I've been on the line and I know what it's like. And I think that that's important because, um, like I try to steal away a little bit of time with each of them, you know, in this next week, just to, just to talk about whatever they, they feel like they feel, you know, like I don't want them to think about the other runners in the field, like just trust the training, trust that they're fit. Um, they're all in great shape. So, uh, let's, the only variable we control is, you know, when we stand on the start line, we do the best we can and, um, they have a good chance. I mean, with the three people that have the Olympic standards, they, they are in the top five in those events going in. And so they, they have a chance. And so as long as they, and they've been running great, they've, they've been no misses. So put themselves in that, in there and trust it just like a, every other race. And, and so I just know that they, they feel the pressure and they feel the nerves and that's normal. And so, um, but you know, that's the Olympic trial. That's why it's every four years. It'll be three years to the next one, but it's normally every four years. And yeah, you just don't have the same chances like you do every other year at the U S championships to make that world team or whatever. There's just so many less, but they're also, they're in their first year out professionally. So like, Shoot, I mean, they, they've had such a great year already. So th- there's no different. They don't. The only thing that's changed is that they've gotten fitter from the rest of the year. Like nothing else has changed. So, so I think having that confidence going in and knowing that they're 100 percent healthy and fit, you know that that will allay some fears. But nevertheless, nevertheless, they'll they'll be nervous on the start line, and I hope they will be. <laughs> if you're not nervous, something's wrong with you. It is. It it is normal. I don't know. I'm I'm not really. I wasn't really good like you, but I I figured the really good people get nervous too. The the biggest races. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the Olympic trials or you know, like it could be you know your conference meet if you're in college. Like that, the biggest race that you have, you have nerves for, and uh, I mean, yeah, you got to have those. It's normal. I guess for parting thoughts on the trials, real quick, you turned pro out of college early. What do you think Hobbs Kessler should do? <laughs> well, I will say like, uh, I saw Ron right before the race and Ron is Ron. He's the best, you know, like, and he was, he was optimistic and, you know, like he told me afterwards, he thought he could run three thirty four. I was like, you should have told me that before Ron, but, um, but, uh, Ron, I can't think of really a, a guy who's had more, you know, really good, um, non-African, you know, guys come through there, Kevin Sullivan and, uh, Brennan and Willis. And I mean, a lot of good ones. And then, I mean, who's, who's a better mentor than Nick Willis to, you know, so I think he'll make the best decision. I mean, normally I never, I don't really advocate for people going professional straight from uh, high school, just because there's a lot of growth that happens as a human being, I think more than, you know, like, I mean, you got to learn about yourself. You got to learn, you know, like the social things and, you know, get out of, uh, out of that, you know, mom and dad's house. And, but you also have to think of, I mean, he's, he's already running as fast or faster than everybody in the NCAA. So he just going to have to, he's going to have to think hard on it, but 
I don't think he's going to go wrong either by sticking with Ron and having Nick guide him either. I mean, that's that's a heck of a good duo. And you know, Michigan, you're you're probably like the third most famous Michigan high schooler now. We 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 keep pumping them out, and I keep getting further and further down the line of the from the top. So now the Donovans went through, and Grant and Hobbs. I'm just they're pushing me off the podium pretty quickly. I'm ranking so. you ahead of Grant. I'm ranking <laughs> you ahead of Grant. All right. Okay. Final thoughts on the uh, on on the trials. I don't know what what do you want people to know. I don't want you to. I, I can't make you rank your your athletes, even though I'd love to. But it sounds like you're very confident, and, and that for sure, Leah, uh, Alicia, and Joe. I mean, they're definitely in the conversation. They got the standards. If they run their best, I think they all can make the team. You know, certain events may be harder than others, but like that's all you can ask for, right? And if someone goes out and runs even better and beats them, you you got to you know tip your hat to them, right? Absolutely. I mean, we, we say that all the time. Uh, you know, like Ollie thinks that all the time. He's like, uh, what if this person goes and runs like, you know what, if that person goes and runs three thirty one, that's great. Like they, they deserve that. Like, cause what you're doing, you deserve it. And I think our team, all of our Americans going into the trials, they deserve to be in the conversation based on what they've done this year. And so if they run their best, they have a very good shot and that's all that I can ask for. And I know that they're going in fit and healthy, and if you're standing on the start line fit and healthy, uh, you have you, you and you can get the most out of yourself that that it's just that matter of nine to 20, nine to 30 minutes, basically. And whatever happens, happens. But, you know, like we we at least go in knowing that we we got ourselves in the right position over the course of this year. Huge change for all of them. They moved to Boulder, uh, took on a new coach, took on new teammates, new sponsor and. Uh, man, I'm proud of where they're at right now, and uh, it'll be a stressful few days, but uh, I'm, I'm ready for it. I've been there a lot of times, so I'm, I'm ready for it, and uh, I, I'm hoping that they just uh, they put their trust in me, put their trust in their training. They'll do great. Well, thank you for you know sharing this experience. And awesome. After the trials, we're going to talk to Ollie, so maybe we'll be talking to you again. And Sweet. If, if, if he's left off the Olympic team, we'll have a black page and let's run. All right, sounds good. <laughs> Him, Alicia, and hopefully we have a couple more Olympians when we talk next. Sounds good. Awesome. I like that. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Weldon.